Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. We have this worldview of things being commodities to extract. And so right now we're just treating the earth in a way that's resulting in our food and medicine to be completely depleted in the minerals. And there's something missing from the food. It's sort of a mimicry of what it could be. In Western culture, we've boiled everything down to profit margins and productivity and efficiency and output. Meanwhile, raping the process of nutrients and energy and wholeness. It's always important to acknowledge the reality of where we are, but I'm always interested in what are the solutions. This to me, regenerative agriculture, biodynamic farming, this is the way of the future. This is our way out. If everybody had the idea that biodynamics has, that the universe is alive, that the farm is alive, if that's how you're thinking about the world, it's natural that one day you're going to wake up and like all of your clothes are going to be made out of natural materials. All of the products in your house are going to be made out of natural materials. There's 1% of U.S. farmland is certified organic, and that includes all industrial organic farmland as well. How do we get 30% of the world's population eating biodynamic food? Or how do we get hundreds of millions of acres of farmland around the world farmed regeneratively? I think there's a huge need for people to want it. I honestly think at the individual level, that's really what needs to happen because what is biodynamics ultimately is like a process of self-transformation of the individual practitioner. We can only care for the earth as much as we can care for ourselves. You can only love someone how you love yourself. I literally have no idea how I'm going to start this podcast. So anyway, we have we have Jared Picard, his first time on The Great Unlearn with, with our dear friend and brother, Evan Britton, who has been on the podcast before. Uh, amazing podcast that, that uh, we were able to share. So many different ways to go about this. And just for context, the original plan was Jared and I were going to start the podcast and Eben was supposed to be flying into town today. And then he was going to drop in halfway through and it felt like a cool kind of thing to play around with. And then Eben showed up a day earlier and we've just been broing out. Yeah. And so it's like, why don't we just the three of us sit on here and, and Eb can be a bit guest, a bit host and we can just play. And uh, I mean, I, I, usually have like a list of things that like, I just maybe want to hit on. I, I got nothing. I got <laughs> like nothing. I can't so, tell if I should be flattered or not. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Cause it leaves it, it lets it be more organic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, 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 this time that you and I have spent together, I feel like it's been like the last month, right? Yeah. It was hot and fast though. Hot yeah, and, and fast. It, That's it, how it is with Jared. I feel Hot that and, and, and it's like, I, whatever we talk about to me is super interesting, you know? So I'm, I'm excited to just play in that space. And generally, I mean, it's ultimately where I try to let the podcast go anyway, but zero, zero prep. We're okay. I think, I think it would be great for your listeners to hear about Jared, Jared's work with his farm, be here farm. And this philosophy of biodynamic agriculture 
and biogeometry that Jared has really mastered at his place. Um, because it feels like we're in this time where there's a lot of fear around food. I don't know about you guys, but every time I turn on social media, two out of five posts are about food shortages and the MIT study that said we have 40 harvests left and all of this really scary stuff around agriculture and food production. And to me, I think it's important to acknowledge, it's always important to acknowledge the reality of where we are and what is, what is true about the time we find ourselves in. But I'm always interested in what are the solutions. And from what I can tell, and this, Jared was on my podcast, The Ebb and Flow, a while back, and and we jammed out on this. But this, to me, regenerative agriculture, biodynamic farming, this is the way of the future. This is our way out. And so that's why I love to talk to Jared about this stuff, because I feel like that's the solution. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be fair, I want to say it's the first time it's been a conversation on the podcast. I think it's something Jared and I talked about. I'd love to to look at that lens through a product that I use daily now, the Summer Solstice Serum. And it's a product that y'all put out that it's amazing. I, I, I don't even know, like I'm classic for not like you saw that little thing. I have the little biocharger thing yeah. that I have near the water. You're like, do you use this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't really, I just trust that some cool shit's happening, Yeah, but I, I don't get into the science. It's not my, I don't want to yeah. get into the weeds with it. Yeah. It's been ex- explained to me maybe five or six different times <laughs> and I really can't tell you anything, but what I told you yesterday, like, yeah, you know, and, you know, and clears the energy and you know. <laughs> aligns the molecules. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, like with, with the serum, I just love it. And I love the way it smells, the way it goes on, the way, it, you know, the way it feels. Oh yeah. It's, it's amazing stuff. It's the only skincare thing I, I use. Well now me too. Cause I yeah. wasn't using anything. Yeah. So. I, w- I never used anything. And I even told Jared, I was like, dude, anytime I put anything on my skin, I break out because I have super oily skin to begin with. Yep. And he's like, oh, it won't happen when you take my stuff. <laughs> and sure enough, now that I'm doing my clean shaven mode, I know that's new. I use it as the aftershave and it's just, ah, oh, it's heavenly. Oh, wow. It's heavenly. Are you shaving every day? Because you know, I was going to say you look pretty clean today. I noticed you were clean yesterday. I shaved yesterday morning. <laughs> yeah. It's every, I don't know. The longer I let it go, the harder it gets. So I just keep it. Yeah. I keep it clean. (laughs) (laughs) So Jared, welcome to the podcast. There you you are. Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, buddy. No, he's honestly, I met this guy in October at the the Runga event, um, which is what I'm in town for this time. And we're just soul brothers, man. Hot and fast. Hot and fast. That's how Jared rolls, you know? I don't, think, just, I don't think it was like a me thing. Like you guys don't, you don't think either of you are guilty parties in, no, in, I, in our friendship? I think it's well, a definitely a, a co-creation. Yeah. When, when you're open and you have the right, the right fit, it's, it doesn't need, like you and I met. When At Eben's thing. Eben and That's Khalil right. did the live That's podcast right. in South by Southwest. And I just saw you and I'm like, 
and there's something about the yeah, fucking cool look going on. I'm totally. like, well, what's up with this guy? And <laughs> we chatted for like three minutes and it was like, I definitely want to, cause you had, I think you had mentioned him or Gino had mentioned and you. Yeah. To be fair, like I, we, we have a certain amount of mutual friends, at least on, you know, Instagram <laughs> friends. And so before I even ended up uh, coming into town, I'd somehow been very aware of you and, and probably listened to some episodes of the podcast already. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was, I just introduced myself as soon as I saw you. I felt like I kind of knew you and I, I just feel like um, in between childhood and the time that we moved out to the property that you guys were talking about there in California, which was 2012. And then now we're in 2022. So it was a good decade um, the, since the inception of the Be Here Project. And over that time, really up until the first Runga, when uh, I met Scott, Lindy, who's the founder of Sun Potion mm. and, oh, and, and who you now we, we connected you guys. Absolutely. Um, so hopefully Scott will be on the show at some point. Yeah. And then um, let's, we'll make sure we link to, to Scott's stuff, Sun Potions on the. Uh, yeah. I'm sure everyone's super familiar. Um, once they see it, if they're not familiar, they'll probably recognize having seen it. Um, but Scott, I mean, like, excuse any, any of my friends who are listening who may be um, forgetting, but. Scott was really like the first kind of guy I became friends with as an adult, uh, at least in many years. Like I don't, mm. after college, in between college and then, you know, I had certainly had a lot of friendly relationships with people, but no one like a soul brother, like Eben was just saying. And then, um, you know, Eben as well, I met him the, a year or two later at Runga. And um, having since, you know, having moved here, the amount of people that I've met who I genuinely want to connect with and um, have become friends with rather instantly in a way that just feels like, you know, really long stand, like how I, you know, how we mess around and, you know, text nonsense to each other. And that's the kind of stuff I do with like a select handful of very like lifelong friends, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's a fun energy to have fallen back into, to like have camaraderie with some guys and just find people that, have fallen down somewhat similar rabbit holes and um, find like, you know, a lot of the things that I'm passionate about sort of pigeonholed me as like almost not an outcast, but like as alternative. And, um, and then I think about, I'm like, why am I the alternative? But I think about it. I'm like, yeah, I am the alternative because the alternative to what the alternative to just this pretty, you know, industrialized, you know, unhealthy sort of society that um, we all know leads to various states of ill health and disease and um, mental health issues and suicide and drug dependencies. And that's our culture, you know? So Mm. um, to find other people who are kind of contributing to their communities and friend circles and environments and to the world more generally in ways that they feel really passionate about and feel positive about. I mean, it's just, it's inspiring to me to, to meet so many new people. And I just feel so lucky to have met both of you guys and to consider you friends, you know, like yeah. I, I kind of thought for a while that friends was something that like, I was like, wow, those guys I was friends with in high school and college. Who I still, I was like, thank God I met those guys early in life. Cause it's hard to make good friends as an adult. And I don't really feel like that 
at this moment. Yeah, there's there's a different, definitely a different energy here. The people approach it differently. Your story is interesting though, because for 10 years, you were, were basically a hermit. Yeah. And that was what you had shared with me before that that kind of how you were going to run it out. Like that was going to be your life. I was super happy with that. Yeah. And it wasn't even like a hermit because the, the, I mean, it was in a sense, but it was also sort of like how I always was. I was always kind of like having the people come over to my house, you know, and drinking beers in the basement, in the backyard in high school kind of thing. And like in my dorm room in college, it was always, we were always hanging out in my room um, for simple reasons. Like I had the couch yeah i had the bong the volcano i had i had curated my room and the environment slight just slightly enough to make it you know to make these situations arise which at that time was i was hanging out all day long right yeah um but that's kind of always been my vibe was the idea that like um oh i have my space and people come into my space i don't know what that is about me but that is sort of uh, something that i can look back on and see was always the case and so out on the property there, we were actually developing a hospitality experience. Um, so it was going to be nine cottages, restaurant, spa, and um, the products you were referring to were basically the, meant to be the food and beverage, spa products, you know, in-room amenities, all the things that the guests would be interacting with um, during their overnight experience and, you know, stay on site. And um, at Be Here Farm. Yeah. It was meant to be an overnight, you know, immersive hospitality experience, kind of at its heart, connecting people with nature, um, which was, and I, I forgot what even the question was. So now I'm just going somewhere. But Well, it's just that you, you were spending that, that time as a hermit. Now you've popped oh, out right. here in Austin yeah. and you're the opposite of that. Like you're, you're, you're out there and you're meeting people and you're having a completely different experience than you would have guessed last year going into 2022. Totally. Also, um, like if I were to look back on the last 10 years, but you know, in developing that project, which ultimately culminated with wildfires that, uh, ended our physical, you know, pursuit of infrastructure and architecture and an onsite hospitality experience. It didn't end our dreams, you know, about the world and like what the brand was kind of after at, at its heart. And more generally, um, I actually think the fire was really liberating in a lot of ways for, for the dream itself. But um, on site, you know, we were imagining that we were going to live there for the next 70 years. Um, and, you know, that my daughter Kaya and her children would likely continue to run that, that project. Um, and so even before COVID, there were times where I wouldn't really leave the site for a couple of weeks because Belisa, my wife, um, and partner on the project would, you know, happily be, she loved, she loves leaving. Like she loves being, going to the coffee shop and doing things like that. She would get, you know, cabin fever if she did what I did basically. And so all the supplies that we generally needed were coming into the house. And like I said, you know, the farm which we developed sort of as one of the centerpieces of this project. It's a pretty interesting place. So there's always people coming to visit. We eventually started a membership club where families were getting weekly deliveries of our products and produce and stuff. And so some of them were coming to visit and um, all sorts of reasons for people to come visit. And then of course, if the hotel opened, uh, there would be 365 days a year, people coming to visit and being on site. So I just imagined 
that having created that experience, there would just be, you know, a flow of interesting people coming through, through my life and, you know, optimistic outlook, pessimistic outlook, probably realized that they're super high expectation guests too. A lot of them probably would have given me a really big headache or, over, over the years. And, um, the, the thing that was, you know, transformative for me as it relates to, you know, like for 10 years, we were working single-mindedly on a very specific goal to develop one of the most unique and, you know, higher end hotels in the country. And that really went away in a matter of minutes when the, when the fire hit our mountain, like as I was driving off the mountain, um, I thought this, you know, it really could burn. This really looks like it could all burn down, which would just be crazy. Um, and for a variety of reasons, you know, serendipitous occurrences, um, that I've you know, spoken about at length on other shows like Gabby Reese and I'll check if people are interested in that story. But, um, I felt like happy in the van leaving the mountain. I just had this overwhelming sense of like, everything is pro- like you're protected, your family's protected, everything's fine and happening exactly how it needs to be. I just had this weird, like ear to ear smile. Um, and eventually when it really, you know, in the midst of the fires. Yeah. Like it's amazing. The one thing that was stressing me out was that we were in two vehicles. And so I kind of felt like, and I was right that my wife and daughter in the front vehicle were probably really scared. Mm. And so I was wishing that I was in the vehicle with them because in my vehicle I had like, we were, I was in an RV and I had our two dogs right next to me. And then like a thousand or 2000 pounds of solar and lunar infused cold pressed botanical oils and glass jars and wooden crates behind me that we had loaded up. And I knew that, you know, even if the whole place burnt down in this weird way, I had left with these oils, which we were Mm going to turn into the summer solstice serum that week and launch on sun potions website. And so I just knew like, and, and, and the, I'm not telling the story that I was skipping, but the, the uh, like <laughs> I, I, I had loaded those oils well, up powerful five, dude. I had loaded those oils up five hours before the fire came. So they were already in the RV. And so it was just sort of a theoretical loading up. I was like, I got to load these oils up because if, you know, we get evacuated for, cause we get evacuated almost every year, not because there's a fire on the mm. mountain, but just cause there's fires in the region and nearby. And so these remote areas, they sort of pre-evacuate you and they say, this whole zone is evacuated. And then you can come back a couple of days or a week later when the fire, you know, weather and whatever changes. And so five out of five of the years, my daughter was alive at that point, we had been evacuated right around October. And so it was September 27th. And I was sitting there thinking, well, there's a fire in Calistoga, which is not like the town and a half over. And, um, if they evacuate us, I wasn't even thinking about real danger. I was just thinking about this idea of being evacuated. I was like, we're going to miss the sun potion launch. You know, we're we're, like, we had this whole plan to launch the serum on sun potion. I was like, how are we going to get the serums to sun potion? We still got to blend them and bottle them. Cause at that point, you know, our process is, um, we infuse for the, for different products, slightly different, but for the summer solstice serum, we infuse seven different botanicals into olive oil, not all together, but just like the, you know, this one and that one and that one. So all individual varieties of botanicals into olive oil. And then they're left out in the sun and the moon, um, for one month for one moon cycle. And the, uh, the daytime and the nighttime 
know, pulsation is the only force of action that gets applied to the serum at any time. There's no heating, there's no pressure, there's no mechanical process. It's just, they sit, (laughs) they sit in a very small, you know, greenhouse, like a hoppy greenhouse, basically. And um, what what greenhouse? Like the kind of thing someone would have in their backyard to, to like start some food for their garden or whatever, a tiny, very small little greenhouse. It's just fills up with these glass jars and, um, they get, you know, heated and cooled, heated and cooled. And that pulsation allows the plants, you know, healing properties to unwind into the oil. Um, God, that's a trip, dude. Yeah. It's kind of like they sit there, they sit there and do essentially nothing. And, you know, the whole universe is sort of just working. It's magic working around it. You know, I picture it as a fixed point almost and like everything's working around it. And I, I feel this is very apropos to the conversation I've been having with Eb since he got here. And it's like, I need to be more like the botanical in the olive oil and just let the universe, like, I don't need to do all the, like, totally let it take yeah. over. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah. So it's pretty hands off yeah. part. Yeah. And a lot happens in the doing of the nothing. Um, you know, it all happens. That's the only thing that happens is that we do that. It all happens in the nothing. Ugh, <laughs> fuck, bro. That's, so that's I mean, amazing. We 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 then put them through this thing called a tincture press, which um, is you know like they go through a cheesecloth type thing, and it gets just you know pressed down by hand. Basically, a little plate uh, comes together and squeezes the oil out of the remaining flowers, and okay. so then. You just have the pure oil at the end where all so the, the oil goes through the cheesecloth. Then you take basically. the botanical, you squeeze out the rest of the oil and then you're, yeah. And, okay. then, That's and then that, that could be, you know, let's say composted. Might that was my next question. Have other uses for mm-hmm. it. Um, but the oil is then, um, you know, unless it was done with a fresh flower, which is our main ingredient is done fresh, which is wild St. John's wort. And, um, I know people do experiment with doing it with dry St. John's wort. I personally never have. So I guess it would be worth a shot to see what happens because it'd be more practical because you could make it whenever you wanted. But St. John's wort doesn't even grow here uh, in Texas, but it grows in a lot of places across the Northern hemisphere. And um, it only grows in a couple week window on either side of the summer solstice. And so that's why the serum is named after it. And so we have to go forage for it in the wild around the solstice this year our um, team member Raphael who will be who's on site still in California will be taking the brunt of the uh, the foraging um, and although it's my f- absolute favorite like occurrence of the year um, theoretically I might even try to find a, a weekend to fly home you know for another reason or something just to do it and just for two uh, weeks that's when it's two weeks on either side of the summer solstice so like one plant on this side of the property will pop up and it'll be brown by the time like another one pops up somewhere else on the property and sometimes they come in clusters and like then we've actually you know we've have a few clusters and then we've specifically tended you know those clusters to what you would call maybe wild crafting as opposed to simply like wild foraging um, what's the difference? The difference would be like, um, you know, I'm harvesting stuff from the wild versus maybe, um, like proactively assisting that thing to 
proliferate. And what would that look like for something like St. John's wort? How how would you support that? Well, like if there was a wild patch of St. John's wort on the edge of our farm, as there was, well, then we would probably like maybe pull out some competing plants that are right around it just to kind of give it the space to grow. And we would, you know, maybe, uh, spread its seeds around to like, you know, 10 feet away kind of thing. Like at the end, like when it's all dry and it's there and it's seeds are going to sort of naturally be dispersed. Like maybe we can cut them and like intentionally spread them around a little bit more aggressively and kind of give them a, a higher chance of. And so also the, the biodynamic farming practice involves a variety of sort of homeopathic plant mineral based medicines that get diluted down in the rainwater and sprayed on the, the soil or the crops. And so those things, can be treated in areas like this as well. Like we can go spray the, you know, manure based application on the soil during certain times of year. And, uh, as the flowers or the plant is maturing and ripening, like the, um, what's called the silica preparation, which is made out of quartz crystals and rainwater ultimately, um, could be sprayed on the plants all the same. And can you tell about what that does? Cause you, you gave me a little breakdown of what the crushed quartz crystal in the water does for the plants. I mean, there's all sorts of levels to answer the question as to like what any of the things going on in biodynamic does, because they're being sort of rec- the recommend the recommendations are coming from like a completely sort of holistic place. And so there will be reasons at like the physical, spiritual, like non-physical, emotional, like at various levels. But tell me this. I'll tell you what relates, what resonates with me about it. Yeah. Like um, what resonates with me about it um, is two aspects of it. One is I'm just looking around the room for a quartz crystal. This feels like the kind of room where there would be one in it. But I don't know, I don't know that I have. Quartz. Yeah. Look at it coming off the top of the skull. Oh, there, there we go. So. Uh-huh. Like the quartz is gr- like, that's how quartz grows. It grows up. Yeah. It grows in that specific pattern. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the thing that is growing vertically and reaching towards the sun like that is silica. That's in, and silica, oh, okay. silica is in, you know, the main thing in that and it's in our bodies and it's in like computer screens and it's just in, I don't know if you Googled it, it'll probably tell us it's in like a major percentage of most things, Mm. you know? And so it's a very, very, you know, pure, especially a super high clarity, um, you know, and high quality, well-formed quartz crystal. It's sort of like um, showing the silica within the plant, like how to act. You know, mm. it's like, look, you could be like me. It's you good. could grow strong and proud and tall and yeah, you, radiant and open. And, and so that's not really what's happening, but it's sort of an, <laughs> well, in a way. No, no, I'm saying it's like an imagination of what's happening. Uh, you but know. that is what's happening. That's just, yeah, it, it, that's it, our words exactly. for what the cells, what the molecules yes. are discussing. Exactly. Yeah. Would you like this? Um, yeah, we can, we can share. Thank you. Okay. Um, and so that's one thing. And that con that concept is like, um, a pervasive across biodynamics, sort of about the formative process that is behind something. That's sort of what the thing is like the formation process, um, is 
a particular energy. Don't fuck with me, man. And that's what that thing's bringing to the world. What do you mean? What do you got? That's not really what's going on. (laughs) Well, I love where you're going with that. The thing that really blew my mind, what you told me about the second thing I was going to say. Okay. What? Tell me. (laughs) Like, like the quality of light more or less. Yes. It refracts the light. So it expands the amount of light yeah, that the so, plant gets. Oh, kind of like uh, Lindsay and I were talking once the other day, Magda with the, the, the sun aluminum thing, Magda from, uh, yeah, Oh yeah. Exactly like Magda. Right. So what, what <laughs> a little like, more organic. That's kind of like a, a very physical thing that's happening. Um, it, it, if you look at a crystal in the sunlight, you can see what Eb's talking about, like a little rainbow, you know, a very beautiful, sort of spectrum of light um, can, you know, it can shine out onto your windowsill or table or something like that. And so the quartz crystal in the biodynamic preparation gets um, broken up and then ultimately powderized. And there's probably some old pics on Instagram of us doing that. If people want to check it out at be here farm. And um, basically once it's powderized, it's gone from, you know, that thing is so dense. It's one of the densest things. And it's so solid in terms of things being solid in this world. It's as bad as solid as it gets. It doesn't even experience entropy of any kind. Like that crystal mm. is not decaying. It's so, it's so locked in as it, as its structure, you know, that it's not decaying. It's just going to, that's my understanding. Anyways, it's just going to be there. And so it, it passes that along to the plant as well. This kind of resiliency or well th- i think that's just like you know a little tangent off of what i was speaking about with that but it's sort of like back to the first one it's sort of just uh it, it's almost like an archetypally perfect version right. of itself you know what i mean it's like it's, it's the about highest as cl- form yeah it's about the, the only highest form would be like a spiritual concept of it you know right. and so that's where, and that's what was pre-existing the physical concept of it was the like before it existed was the potential for it to exist that was you know it as a spiritual concept and that's why you know the minerals and the crystals yeah. and whatnot are the oldest you know kind of consciousness around and so it's like well that's a kingdom of life yeah. mineral kingdom the animal exactly. kingdom exactly yeah we but we kind of we look at it like it's just a pile of rocks. Right. You know, dumb as a pile of rocks is an expression for a reason because we've completely have the belief system that it's just dumb. But it's interestingly sort of like our oldest ancestor, you know, prior to just, you know, ohm. <laughs> right. Sound. Um, so the, the, the oh, light, the, the plant is, you know, photosynthesizing the information that's coming, you know, down from outer space and it's sunlight is sort of the common way of referring to that, but there's all sorts of light that's bouncing and beaming around up there. Um, and you know, we, any of the stars and planets and things that we see as light, like that light is reaching us and there's non-visible forms of radiation and warmth and energy that are, you know, that we're just bathing in. And so, as opposed to like the light bulb that turns on um, and it's just, it just sort of is what it is. Um, This quality of light and information and um, really consciousness 
you know, all this source energy is um, like ever changing from sunrise to sunset and from moonrise to moonset. Like there's always a, every moment of every day, it's completely different. Um, you know, like if that was sound, it would sound different at every second of the day, be a slightly different pitch. Um, and it's not just like one note, it's like a symphony of these different things that are all coming down. And so when we take powderized quartz crystal and, um, you know, I'm now circling back to where we were at, which is that it's one of the hardest, densest things. And by powderizing it, and then ultimately the chunks go down into smaller chunks and then the chunks, the small chunks go into powder. And then we take that powder onto a glass. Um, what do you do that with? I don't know what everybody does that with, but we had our friend who's a blacksmith manufacturer, a special tool for us. That's basically like a bucket, a, st- a, a, a steel bucket with, you know, a steel rod that like kind of like, kind of like up. a mace, you know, the things that guys work out with, is that what they're called? Maces. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's kind of like a big mace, like a steel uh-huh. rod with a heavy steel ball at the bottom that now has a leather bag on top of it that goes over the circular part and kind of chokes the circular part of the mace and is attached to the bucket itself. So that when we put things in the bucket and we smash it up, everything is contained by that leather at the top. It all stays in manually at first, the first, yeah, it's all manual. It's not automated. There's definitely machines that do this. That's a lot of work. Well, I mean, yeah, how, how, you, you how long up, would it take to get what you would need for the year? You do, yeah. you do this like you do this <laughs> once, you know, once a year oh, okay. and you actually end up with for in a typical circumstances, at least on our farm, you end up with many years worth. But there the reason to do it every year, I mean, there is many fold, like even in our case, we lost all of ours burnt down. Wow. So it's like the absent of it all burning down. There could be sometimes they, these things are still like living, you know, organic materials. And so less so with the quartz crystal one because of the entropy and like worms aren't coming in to eat it, mm. but there's other cases where they can kind of go bad and like, or worms can come in and just eat them. Um, and so there's eat the, eat the final preparation, which is ultimately oh, just like a composted plant or manure or something, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? So they could, you know, get little infestations or something like that. And then also you, we make them every year because, uh, like at the end of the year, you then can kind of inoculate, uh-huh. you know, the mother batch with like last year's and like keep working it with, with like this year's. And uh-huh. so ultimately each of these medicines in our case, up until the, the point of a fire, each of these medicines became almost like a library of medicines within themselves. Like each year, it's like each vintage is within itself, you know? Yeah. Um, this and, is what I love about this science, this philosophy of cultivating food, because it's so holistically minded and it takes into account the physical level, the energetic level, the spiritual level of the cultivation and the food. Because wouldn't you agree? I mean, getting back to what I'm really curious about in Western culture, We've boiled everything down to profit margins and productivity and efficiency and output. Meanwhile, raping the process of nutrients and energy and wholeness, 
so you're left with these processed you know processed um almost like carbon copies of what they once were you know uh, yeah without the the density yeah. of the the life of it yeah there's we no look life at, in it we look at the you know i'll speak for myself look at um products that are literally processed like a cracker or something yeah. like that and that's processed but but actually probably i mean and you'd be the one to talk about this jared like the organic food i get at whole foods is on some level very processed yeah you yeah guys, you guys are inching towards like what i actually spend my time thinking about okay. like like <laughs> let's go like i you know i'm obsessed in my head and i have a few friends who are you know on the you know shout out to travis and zurich but i have friends who get 10 11 o'clock calls from me just like asking questions about like the equinox you know for like three hours just trying to understand you know our place in in this universe um as people um as it relates to like the fact that the whole system is alive and that we are in fact the product of the system like we are we are the system you would never cut off your pinky you know what i mean so it's like to to we have this worldview that evan was just referring to of things being um commodities to extract right and so it's it's like the idea that we're taking into the world precedes the actions that we're taking mm. like if everybody had the idea that biodynamics has that the universe is alive that the farm is alive that the farm is an individual alive being with like you know conscious dreams and desires and propensities for you know certain things and aversions to other things um you know much like your your child you know has has these wants and needs and an innate sort of personality um and so if that's how you're thinking about the world well then it's natural that one day you're going to wake up and like all of your clothes are going to be made out of natural materials and like all of the products in your house are going to be made out of natural materials and like in my case, you know, all of the materials that were used to build your house might one day be made of natural materials. And um, basically. And I think even how you go about living. That's the, 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 the whole, th what is biodynamics ultimately at the end of the day is like a process of self-transformation mm. of the individual practitioner. Everybody else gets secondary benefits of increased nutrition, super quality food, all sorts of beautiful stuff happening, you know, in and around them. And that ricochets out through their own family and their community and how they're coming into the world and contributing. So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The main, main benefactor is like the actual person in the field. In our case, this guy, Aton was our farm director from 2015 till, till the time we moved here. And, um, you know, he was the actual person, you know, standing in the field, holding the sort of consciousness of the cosmos, let's say, and the unseen and vectoring it through his own brain into his actions, which resulted in plants and uh, fruits and vegetables. And, and, and so what did that look like? Well, it looks like a little bit something different for everyone. For us, it, it involved like having to learn 
more about that stuff. So we were deeply. Well, I mean, I mean, for Anton. Aton, yeah. Aton, amazing. For Aton, vectoring the cosmic consciousness into the actions he would take to manage the farm. You know, some of it's as simple as like, it's been systemized. You know, it's like these, these models mm. have now been farmed for like a hundred years. There's literally a calendar that tells us, you know, for the next three and a half to four days, it's a, an appropriate time to be working with roots or fruits or flowers mm. or leaves. And just like, you know, I was born on August 14th, I'm a Leo. There's certain qualities, a certain it. arrangement of the stars that, <laughs> that like, you know, brings like my personality into being. Mm-hmm. So there's different qualities on these days that are just more suited to the growth um, or, you know, harvest or and storage of these, these individuals. That universal clock, is it cyclical to where so to speak, you could set your watch by it or is it ever shifting? It's, it's pretty, it's a pretty regular rhythm in terms of like the sun going up and down and the moon passing through the constellations, you know, at a Uh pretty, pretty constant speed. Yeah. Um, so off by maybe varying degrees or a few days or one day. But then if you study like the Chinese calendar or the Vedic calendar or, you know, some South American calendar, you're going to find similar, but different and misaligning sort of moments in time Uh that you might think like, Oh wait, that's a flower thing. Or that, you know, you might try Mm. to cross these calendars together. And, you know, the, the only experience that we've had is sort of sticking with one, like, Mm. like just being regular within yourself is sort of what's required. And because a lot of times the intent around something can actually overpower, you know, the stuff that's the stuff that's the, 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 the underlying rhythms, that's what's happening are mm. so subtle that it is easy to override them. In fact, we are all doing it all the time. We're staying up past sundown. You know what I mean? Like what yeah. with artificial lights on, like the, the actual harmony of nature, it's very easy for us nowadays to just completely override. Right. And so, if on That's the other hand, if on the other hand, you just become mindful of them and act in accordance with them, then it starts getting into what Steiner would, you know, describe as replacing rhythm with power. I mean, you know, replacing power with rhythm um, because certain things like, like working the soil on a day that is conducive to roots in a plot where I'm about to plant potatoes sort of uh, like pings all the water molecules in that zone with the, you know, it imprints it with the energetic quality of that day. It's been disturbed now on a day of rootiness, let's say. Mm. And then if I come. Rooty, like R-O-O-T. Yeah, I just made that up. No, I like that. Yeah. It's good. Rootiness. Yeah. Or like leafiness, you know, <laughs> like whatever the day is, right? So, yeah. And you then know, it, Shakespeare made up a lot of words. That's he invented a lot yeah. of words. You have a modern day Shakespeare over there. <laughs> yeah. It's rootiness. Yeah. Anyways. It is um, a word. Yeah. It must. Yeah. I, think, I just think not in this grammatically, you know, yeah. order. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so. It's like Kaseki. <laughs> <laughs> that was a deep cut inside joke there. Yeah. Yeah. For, the, deep. for the ebb and flow. Yeah. For, yeah. 
unre- that was a can uh, I ask unreleased you Evan Flojo. One tangible <laughs> one one tangible example of choosing power over rhythm could be that you guys could very easily take your summer solstice concoction and rather than allowing it to bathe in the sun and the moonlight for over a month or a month, you could very easily just throw it together, put it in a blender, mix it up, squeeze it out and bottle it up. Yeah, you could you could just take it and put it on the stove. And that's what we're talking. That's that choosing to go with the rhythm of nature over yeah, the willpower. Artificial force yeah. of the stove. Yeah. yeah. It's the patience, and, and right? Like, it's like they really it's the that's where the alchemy comes in, I feel like, you know. We, you get out of the way. Yeah. You just yeah. set the container for it to happen. Yeah. On the stove, I mean, this prob you're probably getting a lot of the similar sort of, you know, constituent parts out of the plant, but there's probably parts on like the high and the low end of that, that don't really appreciate um, the heat or intensity of that extraction, or maybe they're just uh-huh. not given enough time to extract in that way. And um, it's, it's like, I don't, I haven't done a study on like the, what comes through our process versus someone else's. I mean, we're only dealing with direct experience here, but people, you know, open up the product and they smell it or put it on and their eyes roll back in their head because their products don't normally have this like, you know, intangible sense of vitality. Right. Um, and, And so due to the manner in which these things were grown, it's quite possible that the product is hundreds or thousands of times more potent than any time you've seen that word in your life because the words are common calendula you know chamomile these are our ingredients are common and they could be in your tea or your lunch but they're grown um on even in organic you're saying like my organic food at the grocery store they're grown in large-scale industrial monocultures so at the end of the day it's going to start becoming like not even is it organic or biodynamic or or chemically grown or what, what other options may arise, but it's like, is it, what scale is it grown at? And is it a polyculture or a monoculture? Cause it's really impossible to have a healthy monoculture. It's, it's just the more you go away from that natural rhythm. I mean, just walk through the woods. You don't, you know what I mean? Like the more you go away from the natural course of things, the more you have to artificially sort of compensate for the fact that you did that. And that's, you know, there's, there's probably five other euphemisms that I could lay on right now that all just make the same sense to me on this topic. Like you are what you eat as above, so below. Like there's just so many universal truths that, you know, lead me to believe that interacting with the food and medicine that we consume in this way is an incredible positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it starts like, you're not going to do any of the things that I'm interested in if you don't have that idea. And so like our idea that we've taken into food has shifted so tremendously and you say it's the future and like a lot of things that will probably be solutions for the future. Paradoxically, it's been around forever and you know, there's traditional and indigenous cultures around the world who have interacted with the land and their food and their medicine in this way. Like um, my wife's ancestry is very diverse, but one of her um, background is the Taino Native Americans, who are the people that Christopher Columbus discovered when he came to Puerto Rico. 
And amongst a lot of other things about them being peaceful and artistic and just incredibly intelligent people um, who, for example, like trained mute hunting dogs, dogs that would, they would go hunting with in the wild that were silent so they could sneak up on things. Um, and they, um, that's fucking cool. Yeah. Mute hunting dogs. Wow. And so they, they basically had a style of farming that was very low energy requirements. You know, they, there was, you know, cassava and certain, uh, staple crops that were grown in like little small guild like communities where, so is this like the West Indies, Puerto Rico, what is now known as Puerto Rico? I specifically, yeah. I'm referring to Puerto Rico. Uh Yeah. The Taino people. Uh Um, and, uh, so like they were just so in nature still that they were able to develop an entire culture and farming system that relied on these rhythms more than anything. And, um, you know, there's no power, there's no tractor, there's no this. And it's not like they were in the field, you know, hoeing all day long either. They, they had like, you know, the banana leaves drape over mounds of soil and like, they'd have to come back and check it like, you know, a couple times a week or a couple times throughout the season kind of thing. And then there's a big, you know, crop of yucca at the end of the year. And, um, so the idea of like colonizing Europeans coming in and encountering them is a just completely different idea about everything, just totally different worldview. They've, they're already mm-hmm. coming in with the extraction mindset of look at all these commodities that we can extract. And they're like, what do you mean? You can, this is us. Like we're, this is where we live in. This is, we are this environment. Um, and so like the extractor mindset, as I'm just nicknaming it right now, um, would that be the power over rhythm mindset too? Totally. And uh-huh. it, it like births, it births new ideas, which become sort of cultural memes of ours and like cultural just norms of ours. Like the, the idea that um, inorganic and organic nutrients are the same is something that goes back to this guy, Justin von Liebig or some, something very close to that in like 1813, he probably won the Nobel prize for this. But from that point on the idea that we can create like synthetic chemicals to grow our food was the Holy grail of, you know, of, ag- you know, agrochemistry. What's his name? Justice von Liebig, if I'm remembering it right. What years was he around? This discovery was definitely 1813. So something that occurs to me, that's really interesting here. Cause I'm, I'm super interested in how did we get here? That's what I was talking about. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm getting to it. I no, know. This, no, I, I, I know. More questions than answers too. No, this is so good, man. Cause I'm so interested in how did we get here? What was the impetus for getting to this place? There's a great book. I always talk about it. The secret history of the world. I, I bought it. I, I, I've been reading a little bit of it, but I've been dis- distracted with a few other things. But. One of one of my favorite books in that he articulates how modern day consciousness came to be, how we came to this place of materialism and the solid structures and the physical world that we find ourselves in, how we came to put that above everything else, the unseen energies of the world, etc. And so when, when we're talking about food and listening to you describe this, 
European colonizers coming to a more natural place, finding themselves with indigenous people who have been doing things a much different way as a result of the environment that they were birthed into, that they lived in, in a very tropical climate, more, a lot of sunlight, um, lush vegetation, etc., hunting practices. Is the power over rhythm ethos, does that come from a European climate where you have to manipulate nature in a way to cultivate food? Like you have to choose the power over rhythm because you don't have access to the sunlight. You don't have access to the same proliferation of veg- vegetables and fruits that a more a more suitable environment provides that would lead a group of people who came up in that world yeah. to utilize nature. Yeah. Well, Does that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, but it's also just so hard to like, you know, really look back on history and kind of pinpoint because the obvious answer is that these things happened in like bizarre compounding ways that right. we can't really pinpoint. But what comes to me is that there's, there's pre there's prior ideas that we had about the world that allowed for even that, you know, encounter to occur. So like there was a time and the Taino people were probably more in line with this original rhythm, but there was a time, you know, before Europeans settled into cities and, and, and had government governments and started colonizing. And there was a time when, you know, basically all the people on earth were more or less, you know, nomadic, ultimately semi-nomadic, and then eventually, you know, more agrarian. And very few now are semi-nomadic or nomadic. But when we were nomadic and, you know, at some point, all of our genes go back to here, right? So when we were nomadic, uh, our ancestors, quote unquote, generally speaking, everybody's, um, we were completely a child of the earth, you know, uh-huh. and we knew that our, our life depended on it completely. And we were following the herds of animals as they followed the seasons. And we were all just in the same rhythm and flow together. And so the second that we started putting fences around the animals and then planting some fruit trees and saying, okay, this is a camp. We're going to come back here. Every time the animals graze past this area, we're going to live here for four months. We're going to graze these high meadows. We're now Uh semi-nomadic, right? And then eventually it's like, you know, if we just till up the soil and, and, and intentionally plant these seeds that we have, we can, we can grow a lot more of, you know, this grain or that grain. And so the early grain farming, like that's kind of the beginning of agriculture. Interesting. And, and then, and now we have like, well, fuck man, this is my field, not your field. And like, I, I could pay people to come work it for me for some money, but not for my wheat. This is my wheat. And and then it used to just be like, you know, (sighs) you know, we, our community, you know, harvests a deer and mm. like, we all eat the deer. Right. There's not even a thought of like, yeah. it's that one guy's deer. Right. Um, so the idea of agriculture in general is, is a pretty big mind shift. Um, well, that mindset he, shift. He talks about that a lot in um, Sapiens. Right. Have you read that? Yeah. In the agricultural revolution, right. how that totally changed by the way, that Humanity. fella, 
Have you been watching him lately? Uh-uh. He's big in the World Economic Forum. Some of the stuff that he's putting out- That doesn't out surprise me at all. Is <laughs> on some level me. terrifying. He, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It, it's- I didn't. He, I don't love his look at the world, but <laughs> yeah, I, 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 there's a few things from a long, many, many, maybe even not, not quite an hour ago, but there's a few things I wanted to ask about. Four in particular. One, I think it's fascinating that you the the only reason you had the the oils packed up was because you're going to launch. So if you weren't going to launch. Arguably, you wouldn't have had those in there. They would have been on the farm. Is that right? Yeah. And everything on the, all the, I mean, we had a whole collection of products that now as of basically like this month, we're, we're launching and our retail partners and hotels and spas and whoever are going to start carrying it. But up until the fires till now, it's just been the summer solstice serum because we had just evacuated with just those oils to blend just the summer solstice serum, all of the other products, biodynamic preparations and a variety of other things. Uh, intended for the hotel development, actually, like art and crystals and whatnot, all burnt down. Got it. Okay. So thank you. So shout out to our Sun Potion folks for like just having that be in, you know, in the rhythm of it and you pulling it because of that. I mean, yeah, I I was selling it at farmer's markets at that point. Um, And Scott, who I'd met at Runga, was like, dude, we, you know, you got to be selling this. Yeah. Like for real. Like, let's just sell it. Like sell it on my website. And that's actually. I love that we came back to this. I was like way on a tangent. <laughs> oh, I just had a few, a few okay, open loops I'm for myself. Hijack it. Too. I'm also, no, no, no. <laughs> have at it. I'm, I'm loving this. The. Yeah. Cause we got more to say on that too. I think. The, the water that you use with the silica where is that harvested from? What's the, the just, just captured rainwater, like in, in, you know, like 50 gallon drum kind of things that filter out the debris on the top and just capture the rainwater that falls on it. A more advanced version of that is a bigger drum that's attached to like any sort of roof structure, as long as the roof isn't for whatever reason, like got weird chemicals on it and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and the other question, I actually two more. When, the fire came through. I mean, it, it like everything's decimated the crops, everything. Yes. Not really. Actually. Yeah. So what happens? You're talking about the St. John's ward. I'm like, Oh, so that's still come. Like, what does that process look like? So, I mean, the, the property is 300 acres and obviously it's surrounded by an infinite amount of acres, but let's just say there's thousands of acres around that of similarly dense forest and steep mountain ridge top terrain. And the whole region like burnt down. So for miles in every direction, you know, there's people who are saying like, yeah, the whole place burnt down my house, my winery, every inch of the land on our property. uh, The fire definitely passed through a hundred percent of the property. So if you look at, you know, if you scroll back on Instagram a year or two or whatever it was, which is not that many, because being honest, since the fires, it's been very difficult to keep up with like Instagram and certain things like that. But so you don't have to scroll back that far to see a picture of the fire map, which shows the extent of the fire zone. And then our farm couldn't be anymore in the middle of it. I put a little green dot or something where, where the, the farm is on the map. And so everything burnt down, all of our neighbors, wineries and houses all burned down except maybe one or two. And everything on our property burnt down, our power line, our wells, all of our farming structures and 
you know, outbuildings and machinery, construction equipment, giant crystals that were intended for the hotel and stuff like that. And, um, the house and the farm, which are right next to each other were pretty well protected as any structure in this environment should be. All the things that burnt down weren't really ready for habitation. They were in process. In fact, we had like tens of thousands of feet of milled lumber that we had milled on from our forest thinning efforts and then milled to utilize as furniture and, you know, siding and stuff for the hotel. When you do that stuff, you got to stack it in a particular way to dry it. You needed to get as dry as possible. So this <laughs> stuff had been drying for years. It was basically just like a tinderbox. And so when the fire came through, I mean, we just had a huge inferno on site of all this wood and equipped machinery and everything. Wow. And, um, the fire put itself out more or less on like all four sides of the house, about, about a foot away from the house. Like there's, you know, you could easily see it in the photos on Instagram. And, um, it was like the mountain was closed, you know, there's state patrol at the bottom blocking it off. And our guy, Raphael, who's just like a legend, legendary for his loyalty and art, um, was just, you know, it's his job to be at the farm and, there's a guy can't get up to the farm. So he's kind of just sitting there at the bottom of the mountain instead of like sitting at home doing nothing. He'd drive to the bottom of the mountain and kind of just sit there and see if he could hear anything or learn anything. And one time, um, he calls me and he's about 75, 80% of the way up the mountain towards the house because the highway patrol guy had like gone on lunch after the fire. Yeah. Yeah. During like completely closed mountain. Is this the video you showed me? I think. Yeah. It's amazing. And if you do this, like, you're kind of behind enemy lines. Like if you're in an evacuation zone and your life is in danger, they very well might be like, we can't come get you. They obviously try, but it's like, you're, you're, you're not supposed to do that. Some people don't leave at all. This guy who lives on the corner of my block, he's in his mid to late eighties and he did not leave once during the fire. And I mean, the, the amount of smoke inhalation is, oh. is just un- unimaginable. Um, the air quality in our house was like, you know how when you, if, if you live in California, you live anywhere there's fires, you get used to checking the air quality on these apps. And when it's in like the 50 to 75, you're kind of thinking about it above a hundred on the AQI. You're like, you know, advised to kind of stay indoors. Our air quality inside our house, like before, you know, in the weeks leading up to the fire, just from fires in the region was in the two hundreds. The oh, kind of thing sh- you see in like, you know, Chinese cities, like when you Look at the map, like small, you know, written cities. Wow. Um, so this, yeah. So what do you do when you're in the house and you have that air quality? You leave. Like there were times when we had to go travel to other parts of the state or, or out of state just to get better air quality um, during that time period. We, we get that up when we go to Idaho in the summer. Those, you know, it seems like the last five to eight years. Fires fires that are in the area it could be up in Canada, but the wind takes them down and the air quality is just gnarly. But so the farm yeah. itself, like when the farm, when the fire got to the farm, it basically like, you know, had the forest surrounds the farm. So you can imagine like a hundred foot tall fire approaching the farm and then just going down into the ground and kind of crawling through the mulch. And, um, you know, whether it was physical or sort of energetic, spiritual explanations, depending on your, you know, depending on your worldview, uh, it's rather inexplicable as to like why the fire didn't burn down more in terms of the farm and the house. Um, but 
it did certainly melt all the irrigation line, burn up all the irrigation and infrastructure of the farm. So at that moment on, the farm was non-functioning in terms of modern farms. And it was September. So we were about to enter the rainy season and it was the end of September rather. And so eventually a couple of weeks later, you know, rains start to come. We have, you know, the winter. And what happened is the farm actually didn't really miss a beat. Like cauliflower uh, grew itself into huge, like 12 inch diameter heads. What is it from, normally? You know, a, you know, what you see at the grocery store, usually you get Six smaller ones. Inch. Yeah. Those are kind of like commercial ones, but yeah. at the farmer's market, sometimes you see huge honkers, whatever the size, it doesn't matter. We we're uh, the point is, is we we're growing full, fully realized cauliflower with no irrigation of any kind. So the soil was a living, you know, being that survived the fire and kept going. Um, and all of the crops, you know, kale, like was unirrigated. Kale is mostly water. You know what I mean? Like what was make, how, how was the kale still growing? It was in a living soil that survived mm-hmm. the fire. And, um, like if you walked by an industrial organic monoculture kale farm, like a hundred acres of kale or whatever, and what you would see would be brown, lifeless dirt and kale popping out of the dirt. And um, if you just like turned off the irrigation and watched for like five or six hours, I'd have to imagine things would start to wilt. I mean, they're probably on a pretty regular supply of irrigation and, you know, nutrients because Basically, it's like plugging them into an IV. They're, they're in a starved environment where you've killed everything. Pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, rodenticides, whatever the fucking side they can come up with, they got it, right? And so everything's dead at the goal of creating this one cash crop. It's like the exact opposite of God. nature and polyculture farming, where you're tending to the entire environment. And so all of the crops that are arising within it are of the same quality because all boats rise in the high tide kind of thing um so what what would it take for profit margin aside because i know that's the immediate answer of oh well it costs too much money what would it take for an industrial agricultural setup to start implementing even just baseline regenerative processes well I mean, like, why not do that? Yeah. Just even the baseline, like they don't have to go all the way. I I think it comes down to like the idea, like there has to actually be an understanding of why that would be the thing to do. Because here's an example of how it's materializing right now. There's a a, a step in the right direction is that I think there's something like a hundred million acres that are now, you know, uh, you know, chemical industrial, most likely chemically farmed and certainly industrially farmed um no till farmland meaning that they're no longer tilling that land tilling is one of the more destructive practices interesting and you know that's like the dirty 30s that's what led to the dust bowl is just over tilling 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 and now we have you know lost however many millions of pounds of like dust used to fly to new york city right and like dust buildings you know what what was the philosophy behind tilling why did that become such a uh a prolific practice i mean it, it is certainly like a very fast way to you know create 
a plantable space that Mm. is absent of, you know, competition and giving that plant like loose soil that it can grow right into. Um, and, uh, kind of like has a combustive effect, you know, everything gets lit up by all the oxygen and, you know, so it has like a short lived bang for your buck kind of thing. But if you were to do that repeatedly, which is obviously the practice, you're just sort of, you know, burning out that system and you're not, you, you, you're, you're basically tilling it and killing anything that grows in it and then harvesting the crop and removing it from the field without ever returning any nutrient back into that space. So you're just obviously depleting the space, which is why the plants that grow in the space need to be artificially fed nutrients. Mm. And yet when you, when you kill this whole zone and artificially feed them nutrients, which they have to suck up and drink because they're so deprived of any other option, they've basically now, they're basically now living in like a small jail cell of like the available nutrients that have been fed to them. And so they've become completely desensitized to their environment locally and cosmically. They're no longer really so reliant on the natural rhythms of things because they've been artificially, you know, stimulated so much. It's like you could walk by, this is a Dennis Klosek thing. Dennis Klosek is a biodynamic writer and teacher. Um, you could imagine walking by like a rather dull person and they won't even notice you. So like there's all sorts of life happening around these plants and they're not even sensitive enough to notice and engage with and take advantage of the community of life that they're, they're living in. Whereas one of the main points of all these biodynamic medicines is literally, it's not like you're, cause you're feeding these things, you're, you're applying these things in homeopathic amounts. I mean, like, I truly mean that there's, there's literally basically nothing that you're applying. We're taking a teaspoon of this medicine and putting it into, you know, gallons of rainwater and it's just disappearing and then spraying that on like an acre of farmland, you know mm. what I mean? So it's like a mist gets missed. Yeah. It's very little physical substance, arguably none. And so, um, I just lost my train of thought. No, no, it's, it's interesting to me how modernization leads to, or modernization of anything, the modernization of a particular practice in this case, agriculture, it leads to a very unconscious approach to whatever it is you're doing like the tilling of the soil it's just it's functioning on a very unconscious level of oh let's break up the soil with no thought about what that's causing within the the ecosystem of the soil disrupting that environment that material to plant a crop to just to proliferate whatever, whatever crop it is for the end goal. And there's this weird thing of, oh, well, that makes it easier, more efficient, more productive. But then you lose all of the, the holistic mechanism of the whole process if you were to do it in the way that utilizes the rhythm of the universe and the rhythms of nature ipso facto creating 
a much more nutrient dense, alive product at the end. Yeah. Does that make sense? Plants and modernization animals. equals unconsciousness in this weird way. I was going to say then, primitive, but I don't think that's right. Well, the, the, the modern, the modernization can mean a lot of things, but like certainly the idea that this is, you know, a physical only universe with right. commodity parts that I can manipulate together um, into processed goods is, you know, totally uh, different than how my observation tells me things are actually working. Uh-huh. Um, my observation tells me that things are so sort of mysterious and complex, it's best to not interfere with them and to s- support the natural process. And as like a member of that process, I actually feel deeply enriched by being tapped into that process. Mm-hmm. Simply being aware of the, the solstices and the equinoxes, you know, or the cross quarters as they're called, um, just noting these energetic shifts in the year and how I, as a person am in that system has all been, you know, AKA nature connection. Like this is perhaps the, the, at the epicenter of our entire story, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was living in New York city. I, I wasn't thinking about these things. I previously was 250, 260 pounds, you know, at extremely high body fat percentage. Um, Were you really? Yeah. You were 250? I was, uh, you know, about 65 or however many pounds that is, you know, heavier than I am now. Wow. As a, you know, as a varsity lacrosse athlete, no less. Wow. Monster. Yeah. (laughs) So my connection to nature has transformed my entire life. Uh And the lock and key there was recognizing myself as a part of the system or, or the self with the capital S as the system itself. And, you know, that changed my entire interaction with the world around me from that point forward. And yourself. And myself, you know, but I consider, you know, myself a part of that unified experience. Mm. So it's like by being separate than nature and not being a part of the unified experience is the only thing that really allows us to then look at nature as not us, you know, and kind of say that forest is a hundred thousand feet of lumber as opposed to a forest, which is homes to all sorts of animals and providing, you know, respiratory, um, impulses for the entire earth. Like it's like, we need this forest. The forests are what, one of the things that is breathing our planet, um, and housing a lot of our biodiversity and medicine. And so to look at it as lumber is sort of like the epitome of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like the colonizing sort of extracting, um, society, um, you know, that led to like the steam, you know, that led to like the steam engine, um, and railroads. And so now food is being grown and shipped to another part of the country. You don't even know the people who are eating the food you're growing. Right. Whereas you used to grow the food for your friends and neighbors or your community was harvesting the food together it's now become a commodity. We then have, you know, the commodities exchanges where if I'm not mistaken, Cal's background is in. And so like the commodities exchanges is now food is completely abstract. It's not even a thing. It's just a, it's just a number, mm. it's just a value, a, you know, a, a form of, of storing wealth. Mm. And 
you know, spinach and tomatoes, these things rot in like a day. But if I could farm some cotton and then use a mill to mill it up and get it into a, a warehouse and store it until cotton prices are high, well, now we got a commodity on our hands. And mm. so like that's, you know, by the 1800s, the expression cotton was king is basically what was going on in farming. We're now farming things that are good for industries that can be shipped and stored long distances. And we've no longer, we no longer consider it having anything to do with medicine or spirituality. Um, I mean, the first scientists were trying to understand God, right? Like science was like, scientists were like looking up in the skies and they were trying to understand like how God put it all together. But now, the, you know, what's that? You know, how it all got put together. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like a different episode. But. <laughs> <That's enough. laughs> We, um, I've got two bags in my hand, by the way, what's going on here? You're double bagging. Um, you get a regular and you get a sacred, like and th- this one's got a little, this one's got the high test in it. So not here. the high test. Uh-huh. That's why it all comes back to me. It's like the ideas that we're bringing into our actions, I think are paramount because, yeah. and, and that's why biodynamics in 1924, when Steiner speaks about it for the first time, Biodynamics was actually a new idea because at this point we'd gone completely off the rails. Mechanization led to industrialization. Industrialization leads to the green revolution, which means we're basically now hybridizing seeds to handle chemical um, treatment. And we're, we're, we're basically industrializing agriculture around the world. And that's in the sixties and seventies. So it all really, you know, kind of poured gasoline on the situation and they went all in on chemical agriculture at that time. And that's being tripled and quadrupled down on as we speak. Like this stuff has turned into what they're now calling smart ag, which means we're going to consolidate all the sectors, you know, pharmaceutical, agricultural, technology, information, all of it. And, you know, tractors will just be run on GPS and like all the chemicals will be doled out and the food one day will probably just be made in factories and warehouses. And so sounds like a horrible way to go. That's, but that's like, that's the road, you know what I mean? So that's the road that they're on full steam ahead. And so in the same kind of spirit about how like protesting something might not be like the best way to create positive change. Um, although probably sometimes called for, um, I don't really like, I can't, I don't have anything to say about that. Like the government and the industries at large seem like they're, they've, it's not even like they're doing it. They've done it. You know, it's not, there's 1% of us farmland is certified organic. And that includes all industrial organic farmland as well. It's not like that 1% is the best of the best. That's the entire industrial monoculture, organic farmland, plus all the highly regenerative farms, biodynamic farms, all that stuff. That's all within approximately 1% of us farmland. Mm. So they've already done it. So to answer your question, like how do we get 30% of the world's population eating biodynamic food? Or how do we get hundreds of millions of acres of farmland around the world farmed regeneratively? It's, you know, at this point, you know, it's probably a whole nother podcast, but I think there's huge, just a huge need for people to want it. And, you know, COVID could potentially, you know, there's a lot more people interested in, you know, some version of a victory garden kind of thing after COVID, especially with people talking about food shortages and whatnot. There's a lot of people um, that you, you see growing gardens and all that stuff. And I honestly think at the individual level, that's, that's really what needs to happen because, you know, we can only care for the earth as much as we can care for ourselves. And, you know, you can only, um, you know, love someone how you love yourself and all, all those sort of expressions I think are at the core here because, um, through like, that's why we always talk about like 
people try to, you know, I try to correct people and they they'd be like, Jared Picard, he's a farmer. It's like, no, I'm not really at all. Um, but I am super interested in the intersection of, you know, earth care and self care and what, how they interact and how they feed each other and create a positive feedback loop that is so needed for like, you know, the earth and for us. And they're the same thing. Like for, it's just needed for the system. And so right now we're just treating the earth in a way that's resulting in our food and medicine to be completely depleted in the minerals and, you know, the essence of things that are required to drive, you know, IQ or spirituality. Like there's just, there's something missing from the food. It's sort of a, a mimicry of what it could be um, due to the fact that we've intelligently come up with ways to, to grow crops um, that, that sort of beat the system a little bit. What, what effect does, uh, does an eclipse have on the, the whole farming? That's a good question. Because I believe where Lindsay shared that we're like in the midst of one or we're approaching one. I can't speak to that too much other than to know that um, on the biodynamic calendars, which are, you know, basically advising planting um, recommendations sync to, you know, some planetary uh, relationships and alignments, but mostly the moon's, uh, relationship to us and whatever constellation it's perceived to be in front of as it relates to our viewpoint. And so on the calendars, these eclipse times are usually one of a handful of times that are just sort of blacked out, um, as like a, you know, rest time and do nothing time, like don't plant time. Mm. So I'd have to look into that more. How's the, uh, how are the insurance claims going on the fire stuff? Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing up that. Yeah. No, it's over too. I mean, it was just a total nightmare and just like, you know, not just, it's just, it's a 30 minute story, but short answer is, you know, nobody wants to uh, experience wildfires. Yep. Don't recommend it. Yeah. Not at all. But that offered an opportunity for you. You moved yeah, from someplace totally. that you thought you were going to spend the next 70 years at. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. We, and, we touched on it a bit as well. And yeah. it's, it's super interesting what doors that has opened up and how you've been able to work with that. Yeah. I think that's probably like, you know, maybe the most tangible and in simultaneously intangible takeaway that a listener who's made it through our hang could, <laughs> could, uh, could take is that like, I would, like I said, single-mindedly tens of thousands of hours working towards a single goal that we actually, in a way, sort of reached a level of achievement on that we hadn't reached up until the fires, meaning four days before the fire, we internally greenlit our, our budget, which had been thrice designed by three different architects and bid out and never really fell. Our vision and our budget were never able to, to, to meet. Um, so that was like a steep learning curve for almost eight or nine years leading up to the point of uh, COVID and deciding to still continue with the project, even though like hotels were literally closed at that time um, and greenlitting what would have had a lot of hurdles ahead of it, no doubt, but greenlitting our construction project and four days later encountering the fire and, you know, one day later having to accept that we wouldn't be developing the hotel, which was, you know, I think a big part of my identity was, was wrapped up in that, you know, that I was the guy who was doing that. Um, and luckily it wasn't too hard to let that guy burn down in the fire. 
Um, but I, I just felt a surprising amount of relief at that moment. And so one thing that was interesting to me is that like, I had to have a calamity of the wildfire reveal a path to me that maybe it was present. Like had I been even more mindful uh, of the signs, you know, because all of our success, <clears throat> all of our successes on the project in developing it up until that point were so hard fought. And I didn't realize that really at the time, mm-hmm. or even consider that there was an alternative because I was basically living my dream. I was living on 300 acres, developing a biodynamic farm, developing a world-class hotel. My father was my partner. My wife was my partner. My daughter was born on the farm. People were coming to visit and their eyes would roll back when they'd see what we've done. And I was living the dream, you know? Um, But I assumed, therefore, that it only made sense that things would be very difficult. You know, why should everything come easy, you know? Um, Mm. And so I just assumed that everything was fine and I was doing the right thing because, you know, I have all these other blessings in my life. So at least I deserve to work hard and have difficulties in this aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after the fire, when there was no more hotel project and I was literally just focusing on our products um, because, you know, we weren't doing the hotel and everything else burned down. So it was literally just the summer solstice serum. And it was kind of the flag that, you know, carried us through that period. If it wasn't for the summer solstice serum, I probably would have just entered into severe depression because I would have just lost everything. But instead I was like, all right, what do we, like this serum was with us for a reason, you know? And so the energy of then trying to introduce the serum to people, which I had been introducing and working on the hotel for 10 years at that point, the energy was like laughably easy. The doors were not only open, but people were sitting there being like, I've been waiting here for three months for you. Where have you been? Like, like just so easy and interested in the products and in the, the company and in the offering and what we've done and wanting to integrate it in some way. And um, so I've now been trying to just look for that energy in things because it's so much easier than having to struggle for all your victories. And so basically I did find some severe depression eventually after getting here I, I finally like the letdown of recognizing that my family just went through something really traumatic and separating us from the idea that we would only live in that place for the next 75 years i mean especially my daughter who was only five or six at the time and was of the place she was born there you know the trees are she names the trees like there it was just totally her she was totally a part of it um so all of that was so traumatic and then letting go of it i think i had that sort of like you know, when like Evan probably is familiar with, I, I would have to imagine that a lot of NFL players get sick, like the week after the season kind of thing, mm-hmm. when you finally have this mm-hmm. letdown. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Always. so I went into this like month when we first came here in January, where I was just like, so cloudy headed. I was waking up tired every day. Not typical for me at all. And I just had no drive or motivation to like be follow any of my passions. Um, and so I just kind of went back to my, my self-care routine. It was like, don't give yourself a hard time. That was kind of a lot. Let's just focus, focus in here. Um, and that vacuum of not 
So, so meaning like I wasn't proactively trying to do anything. Like our brand has a lot of things that are out and happening and I was maintaining our relationships and whatever it is, but I wasn't actively trying to make things happen for the brand. Like, you know, we have this event that we come and do on Sunday. Um, by the time this airs, it'll have been a massive success. But like, I wouldn't have thought to do that in January. I wasn't trying to do anything. You know what I mean? Um, and that created a vacuum where I had been doing stuff so hard. So like, I'd, if there's like a circle around me of all the available things that I can do or am doing, I was filling that circle up aggressively with my stuff for the last 10 years. And then I just stopped and I feel like the space was still there and it now was empty. And now things are entering into the space. Like, like it just pops in and one by one, I'm just trying to be discerning about whether or not it feels like the easy thing or the hard thing, um, regardless of uh, how much it makes sense on paper. You know, I'm just trying to feel into things a little bit more. And so that's been the real blessing for me is that like, I thought I was living my dream and being super successful and then a fire burnt everything down. And now my dream is, feels, feels optimized. So, I mean, that was just a trip for me to have a, a calamity optimize my situation um, in a way where it's like, A, calamities maybe sometimes are required or B, like, Maybe I could have optimized my situation before the calamity and, and avoided, I don't know, but it's something that I'm thinking about for sure. It definitely feels like the, the, I mean, this is very much what we've been talking about the last day is, yeah, like I want to start to tune in and be more discerning about those easy things because there's been a lot of things that have been hard, I think unnecessarily, yeah. and it's just getting out of that flow and the doors opening up and like really just pressing, striving, doing. And yeah. it's been like, I, I want to shift that before the necessarily the, the calamity. And, you know, to my brother's credit, he actually walked me through that. I kind of just called him and said what I said to you guys. I'm like, so cloudy headed. I'm so unmotivated. I have so many things I should be doing. And his advice was to just lean into the cloudy headedness. Mm. Like if that's what we're naming it, like, okay, like, what's the cloudy headedness have to offer? Like maybe it's really good, you know, lead into your cloudy headedness. And there's a variety of ways where you might be able to engage in that topic. But for me, it was more or less like going for a slow walk, taking a bath, reading a book, hopping in the sauna, just taking care of myself. Uh -huh. And it all comes down to um, like a concept that I learned from Paul Check originally. Um, I don't know if it's something that he synthesized on his own or if it's borrowed from something else, but I learned it from Paul. Um, it was what he calls I, we all. And, um, right there. I, ha I, I wrote that. Oh, oh nice. you wrote that. Yeah. You I, son I snuck bitch. it on Cal's board. I like it. I was going to let him, let it just appear to him one day, but there it is. Um, basically, I mean, that's the process I, I sort of rely on, which is that like, there's the I level of relationship, which is my relationship with myself. Um, and, there's the we level, which is like me and my wife, me and my daughter, anyone's super intimate one-on-one -on -one like that. And then there's the all level, you know, teams and the school community and the community at large, or even, you know, all of humanity. And the deficit that we bring into each level compounds itself. So if I am 
at the eye level. And I'm Jared. And I have some 100% optimal potential version of myself. If I'm not sleeping well, not taking care of myself, eating junk food, whatever it is, and I'm optimate, operating at something like 80% of my deficit, you know, my potential, I have a 20% deficit. So now all of my we relationships, the half of the relationship that I'm contributing, I'm, I'm, op, I'm contributing at a 20% deficit. If my wife's contributing at a 20% deficit on her end, then our relationship, every single time we're interacting, is operating on a 40% you know, deficit, basically. And then that compounds you know, yet again at the uh, all level. And so to really you know, contribute at the all on the we level does require a certain amount of effort at the I level. And, you know, selfish as that sounds, I mean, that's just been my experience that that teaching has, has meant a lot to me to focus on the I and the we levels of things as a contribution, basically, to the all. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to say something about what's been so impressive to me about you and your process throughout this whole thing. Because I met you, the fires had happened. You were right out of that period. And you had tremendous energy, super positive, beautiful smile on your face, very warm. You were venturing into this new landscape of whatever it is you're going to do or what the options are. And over the last few months, as you've really settled into this, this space of surrendering to what has happened and giving yourself that time. And I think it has to do with your presence. I keep looking at this, Cal, you've got punctuality equals presence. And that's had me thinking a lot, but you have a tremendous level of presence to you. In other words, in another way of saying it, you have in a more maybe modernized psychological perspective, we could say that you have tremendous emotional maturity. Because when I left the NFL and there was that initial relief, oh God, I'm done. Wow. But then slowly but surely, because now there's this vacuum that had been created from leaving football. And I had spent the last, from the time I was 13 to 28 years old, grinding my ass off playing football, giving it everything I had day in, day out from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night for 15 years, 320 days a year, all out nonstop. And that break every year was literally the only downtime. And so I came out of my football career. There was this relief of, wow, it's over. It's done. I'd really felt a sense of completion with that. But as that low level of anxiety developed, I just started throwing myself into things, anything and everything I could. And it was writing, it was cannabis advocacy. It was like, let's do a podcast. I got to get involved in cannabis. Let me start a CBD company. Let me do this. Let me do that. Like everything, just grasping to just get into action, to do something, to prove myself, to will it back into, you know, 
back into financial prosperity, all sorts of things. And only recently, literally over the last couple months, I've recognized how, you know, that's been my thing of my proving my validating my self-worth through how much I'm doing. And it's run me totally ragged. And finally giving myself the space to go, man, I'm totally exhausted. And I'm totally burned out. Okay. Maybe let me not do anything for a minute. And as I've let go of everything and cut ties with things and said no to things and put things on the back burner, taken a break from my podcast, and I give myself this space, then the universe just starts to bring things in. And it's effortless. It's like, holy shit, dude. It didn't have to be so hard. It never did. I just created that, that matrix of my life. It was like, it's got to be hard, Eb. Got to work your fucking ass off. That's the only way it happens. In your gym, I was looking at on the board. I don't know if you wrote it I or think if Jake, Jake wrote Jake it. Jake may have written it. It says something like, I always prove and achieve. Yeah, I was like, is it or purpose and achieve at all? I have something to that degree. Yeah. I will always prove and achieve. Yeah. And I was like, man, I've been there. Fuck. It's a hard road to walk, man. Because first of all, what are you proving? That's the question. Are you proving something to the outside world always? Are you achieving for some external gratification? Because unfortunately, it'll never be enough. That's what you're always doing. And you're going to fucking burn yourself out in the process. Like we talked about it when I was on the pod. About my whole football career was this vehicle to prove to the world how fucking big and badass I was. And I literally, I, I would have killed myself in the process of proving that to the world. Hospitalized multiple times. Surgeries. I would have killed myself in the effort of proving to the world my self-worth. It's interesting that you you bring up Jared's kind of moving through this because it isn't dissimilar to your experience in the NFL. And my leaving trading when I was 41. Yeah, of course. I went on to coaching. I was really into fitness and health. And so that was my, so I got, you know, I was inspired by it, but I was busy doing, I never stopped. Like I literally, you know, you know, left trading on a Friday. And that Monday I was up in the office, like writing programs for people just in the work. And I never, I never, like I had that major sense of relief when I knew I was going to leave, but I never mourned that that part of me was, was dying. And I never sat with that and gave it the the love and compassion that it needed. I just moved on. And so there was like an open loop there for me that, you know, I would say in writing my book has really allowed me to have such a deep appreciation and gratitude for those years I spent as a trader, but for so long, I didn't feel that way. It's like, Oh, I'm this new guy. I'm, you know, more awake now. And I'm into these other things. And I was a trader and just all about making money back then. And I'm, And it's like, I got far away from that, that shadow. And in writing the book, it allowed me to develop a new relationship with that 
that period of my life, which was huge, but it's, I mean, that was nine years ago that I left, you know? And so you, to go through this experience and, you know, thankfully you had someone like Jason, your brother to reflect that back to you that you just, and I'm pretty good at telling people that actually, like that might be something I would share. Um, but I, I'm not, I'm not following that myself. I was talking with Eb earlier today or last night that over the fall just had the most beautiful energy flow. Life was easy. Things were coming into, it was just, just like you're talking about. It was so easy. People were like waiting for me. And I was able to be super discerning about the yeses and the nos as this, you know, 2022 started. I got into a groove and I got in some good rhythm. I was like, okay, hey, this is, you know, now it's time to, to, to do some stuff, to plant some seeds, whatever. And then I just got stuck and it became, the groove became like a rut. I've just been in this rut and been tired. I've been holding a lot of things that actually don't need me to hold them. But to Eb's point, like there's this deep pattern of me trying to prove myself and validate myself and show that I'm worthy and um, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in that old pattern right now. So just to hear you be able to really alchemize that experience rather quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Not to say that it wasn't painful, the deep depression, but, but. Or that it's over. Yeah. You know, it keeps going. Yeah. I think that like a part of me is going to be attached to that property forever. Um, like I, I I'm there right now. This part of me is there right now. Um, but. I think it was sort of like, I didn't have a choice. I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um, like, like I was so, I, for the last 10 years, I was acting in every room that I was in as if I was the guy who developed Be Here um, as a hotel is how I would have thought about it. And, you know, I would sit in other hotels and just observe and look for ways to differentiate and offer a better experience. You know, for 10 years, I was just, I was convinced in my head that it was real, you know, and that it for sure was going to exist and be highly acclaimed and everyone would, you know, I would then be the guy who did that. And part of me was almost like waiting for me to become the guy who did that. Like I wasn't out there interacting with people, I think probably subconsciously because it was like, no, I'm working on developing this project. And then I'm the guy that you all will love and accept. And so lack really lacked the presence because it was always focused on when you become that, like then things can change when you become the guy who did it. I wouldn't say I was lacking presence because, you know, thankfully naming the project be here and it sort of originating or, you know, its origin story being of basically a call to mindfulness, like basically the origin of the whole concept is simply applying the lens of mindfulness to all aspects of our life. You know, if you apply the lens of mindfulness to your toothpaste, you quickly realize that like you're putting some weird shit in your mouth and uh, you know, you just have to read the ingredients on the back. And so it really is, you know, I really do cultivate mindfulness um, as a. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And in again, you're having this version of who you're going to be. So there's a part of you that actually isn't present with those people. You're not going up subconsciously or, or whatever, because, because you're kind of still on, on some, not that you're not present, but the, it, no, there's a you. nuance around it where, 
I, I was, it's what's weird about it is, is that I was like a sheen. It's of, just of a veil. There's a veil of who you are working on projecting to people. Yeah. It's a, ver- it's a different a projection. It's a different version of um, someone saying, well, I'll be good once I make a million dollars. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. That's yeah. Exactly so right. it's, it's kind of your version of that. It's more subtle. Yeah. Right. And it sounds cooler to people, but at the same time, there's a part of you that's closed off because it's that part's not complete yet. So you're maybe not putting yourself out there that's in it. social situations. But yeah. And probably a variety of other ways that mm-hmm. is impacting my, my relationships and quality of life. But that is the essence of what, I'm trying to share that feels more general to people yeah. besides myself is the, you know, the idea about the fire being like having to wait for a calamity to become mindful of these things. And then also just the idea of like, I'll be sort of worthwhile when this happens. Mm. Um, I wasn't consciously thinking that, but I do think in retrospect there was, there, that was going on. And then, so when that was gone, it was like, you know, kill myself or get over it. Like I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um, so, uh, I was either like, let that guy burn down in the fire and recognize that there's a lot more to me than that guy or be that guy and just like be the living dead for the rest of my life. Cause I right. didn't achieve my dream, you know? Yeah. And, th- and then I realized that my dream was not to develop the world's best hotel, even though that quickly became the marching orders. Um, the dream was to live in connection with nature and share with people the things that were transformative in our lives. And so when you actually took away the physical property from the dream, it was no longer squeezed into that small container. And it feels, if not universally applicable, broadly applicable to other people's projects, teams, and organizations. And like, yeah, my brother was right there for me at a particular time, but there's just been so many people, um, like Eben included. Like one time he was like, he reflected back to me that, you know, he was really upset when he kind of like heard about the fire and that we'd be le- like, you know, as he heard my story develop, he was feeling like, man, like how's Jared going to fucking get over this? Like, this sounds like a nightmare. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but then he said something like, then he realized that that was just some idea that I had. Like I created that be here is me. And I take it with me into every room I go into. And I can apply it to anything that I want. And so yeah. trusting his reflection and then like, you know, some other pep talks from some other folks in my life, basically, you know, I started trusting their reflections a little bit more than the voice in my head that was like, this is confusing. This is, what are you going to do? Like, that was the bummer or whatever. You failed. Whatever the thing yeah. Is. And I didn't really feel like a failure because there were just so many things that happened that um like there are certain aspects of it that I failed like I I wish that I had um you know managed even the relationship with my father better in the sense that we became almost exclusively business partners Mm -hmm. because the immensity of the project overwhelmed any other thoughts of conversations of any other thing so for years we we didn't really relate on a father son level. We were just really talking about money and, and, and the hotel. And so there are things that I feel like I failed at, but as a whole, I felt like the project was like 
before I knew that life here in Austin was going to feel just like, like a level up, you know, as opposed to a level down, um, in the interim between here and there, when I was kind of thinking like, is this a failure? Like what aspect of this is transferable beyond this? Like, was this just some selfish joy ride for me? Like, what is this about? You know? Um, because I always thought that developing the hotel was going to lead to other interesting opportunities and new projects and new partners and books and whatever it was going to be. And so I was like, is that just over? Um, and so finding out that it may have expanded was, is, is yet another interesting sort of general takeaway for me. Yeah. I also think because it's you, you don't see it as, as we see it and you're like, I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. You actually had other choices too, that just Mm -hmm. didn't like it was very clear to you that you had for you it was two and the one didn't seem like a good option. So that that's not common. And I think mm. that's what Eb's talking about with the emotional maturity of, of to, to go through the period of deep depression. Cause that's important. You got to feel yeah. that. And you did. That. Yeah. But then to trust in your brother and others who showed up for you that, okay, I'm a little, unsettled about what to do. And so I'll take some guidance here. It really, I mean, what I see with you is someone, as Eb said, is like super present whenever I'm with you and very grounded. And I don't know if yeah. those two things necessarily always go together, but I just feel like you are so here, Yeah. but your mind is actually able to tap into other things while you're here. And so you have, you just have this ability to hold all of that, which I think is really rare. And that's yeah. one of the reasons I love hanging out with you is I know you're here, but not so here that we're just within this little conversation where we're able to go places and yeah. stay here. Yeah. One example, because you could have latched on to, I'm, I'm the be here guy. I'm the be here farm guy. That's what I did. I created it. You could have killed yourself in keeping it going or finding a way or doing whatever. And there was a thing that really struck me a few, a couple years ago, maybe they were announcing the hall of fame inductees and on ESPN or something, they showed, they had a camera on this guy, Drew, Drew Peterson, I believe, who's a receiver. Pearson. For the, Drew Pearson. Yeah. Receiver for the Cowboys back in the day. And he didn't get picked again. And he was with his whole family and he's sitting at the table and they announce the inductees and his name isn't on there. And he, he bangs the table and he goes, God damn it. Look at what they're doing to me again. And I'm like, this is, this is a 60 some year old man who is basing his entire life on whether or not they bring him into the hall of fame. Wow. Yeah. I thought to myself, I don't think I've ever seen anything more tragic than that. He's been holding that he's locked in. I was a football player. I can be nothing else. That's me. That's who I am, even though you're not in anymore. <laughs> you haven't played in 30 years, yeah. 40 years. 
And yet he's so locked into his identity as a football player that until he's inducted into the Hall of Fame, it's not good enough. He already gave everything he had to the game. Now he's letting it take everything else from him. You know? Yeah. And we have that choice. We have that choice. Lots of people do that. That, that that's his final in his mind, his final bit that he needs for the validation and it's not coming. So what's he to do with that? And how many of us have a similar version of totally. that? That one's like so many people, man. I mean, how many people do you meet who are like wrapped in shame and guilt, even subtly because they believe that their time came and went they missed an opportunity. They didn't do it right. They didn't do it good enough. They didn't have the success they needed. They had to walk away from it. And now they're working the, the whatever job just to fill the void rather than continuing to follow their heart, which is what it is. That's God. You know, and Jared, you were the Be Here Farm. That was the materialization of who you are and what you believed in. And your passion for bringing nature, connection to nature, to the world, it's like, that's your gift. This was just a place, amazing place that you built. But your true gift is in your mastery and expertise of this way of being that you can bring to anything because that's an infinite now. You created the thing that was stable and um like foundational yeah foundational but the true gift is infinite because you can go now to companies you can go i i dude in my mind's eye seeing you i'm like this guy you have the potential to be that paradigm shifter in the industrial food world you could be the guy who comes in and says this is how you reorganize and reorchestrate everything you're doing here so that it replenishes the soil, so that we create sustainability in our food systems. You have that know-how and you're blending because another thing you, you've done in your life is you worked on Wall Street. So you get the business side, you get the financial side, you get these these other components to this thing that are really important when you go into those boardrooms. When you go into that corporate realm and when you can blend both of those, I mean, that's where we're at, man. That's what we need deeply. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think that there was like in this lifetime, probably an opportunity for that. I was kind of taking the approach like, oh, I'm going to be the change I want to see in the world by developing this project and just sort of being an example for our guests who would come stay with us. And after the project, it's like that I'm looking at the eye we all now, like, we kind of have to weave the change. Like the process can't happen in a vacuum. I can't just do it by myself as like a shining example on the hill because I wasn't collaborating. And like mm. if, if I, once I leave the hill, if I do what you said and I start impacting multiple organizations, well, like already I've compounded that impact. Mm -hmm. So I think that like being more collaborative about the approach is probably part of what I'm looking to do going forward. And I mean, yeah, the, I guess the difference between me and the guy at the hall of fame inductee ceremony thing is like, 
I really, and maybe he didn't feel like this. I don't know, but I really feel like I left it all on the field mm. and I was so proud like I, I may I have think been, that's a big part of it. I may have been crying when I said, when I, when I said this like a month or two ago, but I was like, I don't care what anyone ever says about what we did there. Cause like, I know what we did there uh-huh. and I know how I feel about it. I and that. I just, I even accept really all of the, the pitfalls of the property, even though I feel like there was a lot of dynamics involved in some of our historical decision-making like I'm fine just being like, yep, the project didn't materialize. We spent millions of dollars. We had millions of dollars of uninsured losses. Um, and there's no hotel there, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like the stuff we did there. I, I don't, I know that for the rest of my life, it's going to be meaningful and be like you said, the foundation for, for whatever's next. And, you know, I am thinking about how to do what you just said. Like we have a a friend who is um, involved in these things called DAOs, D-A-O, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And um, I'm trying to wrap my head around how a DAO like funded by the people, essentially, you know, millions of people around the world to somehow um, convert millions of acres of industrialized farmland into regenerative farmland, just like Evan was talking about and what sort of infrastructure would have to be required to create and fund grants so that farmers can have access to rent free land, basically land being one of the barriers to entry, you know, for young farmers and like how to create something that I'm just, I myself have made up the nickname of the American farm Corps. Like instead of the Peace Corps, like how can we get, you know, kids taking a gap year in between high school and college so that they can work and volunteer on local farms in their community and have localized, you know, food systems. Like your backyard here is beautiful and also a monoculture of grass, except for like the planted areas. Yeah. All of your neighbors probably have similar situations. However many neighbors are on this block, like could potentially communally grow all of your food right here in the neighborhood. Like every 10 or 20 houses could very easily take their annual food budgets and contribute them towards the salary of a young farmer tending their family garden. Um, so yeah, I would like to see how to make the impact be as broad as possible. Well, what I keep seeing is this old vision was like you actually like in a prison cell and then when it burned down you got the key you walked out and you're like oh wow like i did all i i gained all this mastery here doing this kind of one major project but the the impact you can have and whether it's you know working with these um, big industries or or whatever it is it's just allowing you to spread those wings and start to tune into like what feels easy and fun for you a way to share those gifts. But in, in, and again, I keep going back to you, you turn that around rather quickly to get to this point right now after a catastrophe. I don't think I turned it around at all. Um, I think that like, I think that's the importance of <laughs> having, of having a dream, you know, because the, the dream, you know, to quote Paul's dreamline language, Paul check, um, like the dream is a bullseye. 
off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And if I'm the archer shooting my bow and arrow at the bullseye, the line in between me and the bullseye, that's the dream line. And so in Paul's language, I want to use the values that I create for myself around the four doctors, Dr. Diet, Dr. Quiet, Dr. Movement, and Dr. Happy, so that I can make decisions in real time based on my values to walk straight down my dream line. Mm. Example, one of my values around Dr. Quiet is I go to bed by 10 o'clock, let's say. There's a concert that I know is not going to end until no, two. No, you don't. We're texting way later than that. That's the fucked up thing is that ever since I've moved here, I'm, I'm still two hours off. So instead of waking up at seven and going to bed at 10, I'm waking up at seven because I set an alarm. Yeah. If I didn't set one on the weekend, I actually tried it. I woke up exactly at nine on the dot the other day. So I'm still on my seven to 10 schedule, but it's now nine to midnight, unfortunately, or seven to midnight. I want to talk, say one thing that you said, it was really interesting. Because Cal said, hey, you turned that around really quickly. And then you said you didn't turn that around at all. And uh, there's a very deep principle of healing that we have misconstrued. And my mom talks about this. My mom is a master healer, body worker, profound. And she talks about how when we have a physical injury, you experience a physical injury and then the sort of mainstream Western medical ethos around it is we were at a pre-injury. We went to B in the injury. And then the idea is that we're going to get back to a, but we don't, we go from a to B to C because the, the structure has changed through the injury, but now we have this opportunity as we heal to become something else and you become something else on the other side. You don't go back to where you were. You know what I mean? And that's this interesting idea about what you said, Jared. And it's part of the the letting go process because you're not really trying to get back to like, I suffered so many injuries you know, shoulder, back, torn muscles. I tore my quad in college. I still have a divot in the quad. And it's an interesting shift of awareness when you realize you're not going back to A, you're going to C. And then from there, because it's always changing and evolving and growing and expanding, right? Yeah. So it's just like taking what has happened Taking what is experienced, been experienced, alchemizing it. And I think in a way, you hunkering down in the cloudiness, the depression, the darkness, like that's such an important part that we always want to override. Like I was trying desperately to override that coming out of football. I'm not going to feel down, man. Can't feel down. Can't feel totally obliterated, even though the life I had been living for 15 years is over. Can't happen. I got to go. We're going to the next thing. But I would find myself walking into these rooms and people would identify me as a former NFL player. And I think to myself, God, that's so fucking sad. That's what I am. Former NFL player. I'm so much more than that. That was something I did. And I couldn't articulate that at the time. And only over the last, you know, 
immersing myself in my in my process and learning about who I am, coming to terms with myself, healing those wounds, have I been able to come out and go, oh yeah, you know, I was an NFL player. That was part of who I was. That'll never go away. But I'm so much more than that as a human being, whatever that is, and allowing it all to be there. Does that make sense? And not, not having it be this, you know, you feel those things, those, those weird psychic, psychic walls that we experience within of, it's almost like you've got blinders on because you're trapped in this identity or this way of thinking or this, this thought pattern. And then all of a sudden the blinders come off and it's just, you see the whole picture and you're okay with it because there's this resistance to this thing. You didn't want to look over here because you don't want to identify as, I don't want to identify as an NFL player anymore. Yeah, but there's other stuff hiding over here that you need. Of course, of course, that enrich and inform who we are. And like the injuries, that enriches your unique infrastructure on a physical level and then how you go about living in the world too. Say, oh, I can't just go run sprints without warming up. So now you have a more fulfilled outlook on your experience and what you're doing. That makes sense. Mm, makes a lot of sense. I think it's something that um, maybe comes from my brother and Arnie Mandel, but um, you're speaking about to me, the idea of including and then transcending. So it's not about like cutting off that thing. It's about including it and then transcending. So like, if we're going back to the story of food, if we had come up with all of these different developments for mechanizing, industrializing and smartifying food, like had we just included the prior learnings mm-hmm. uh, from the nomadic and indigenous cultures on yes. regenerative principles and balance and, you know, feeding the earth and ritual and ceremony and offering and the non-physical, uh, non-physical world being, you know, paramount, by cutting all of that stuff off, we have ended up where we are. So we could potentially include and transcend and find ourselves in an industrialized regenerative food system in the future. I mean, I think that's the only really way out. And um, the other thing you said about the cloudiness, actually both of you said, here's the thing that listeners might be interested in um, as it relates to their own, you know, cloudiness is like, how long do you think it took me to work through the cloudiness after taking my brother's advice to lean into the cloudiness. A while. It took me one day, one day, one day of accepting my, my place in the world Mm. and just accepting the feelings inside me as valuable to my process and asking those feelings through some, you know, journaling and, you know, somatic experiences, um, of, you know, body movement and just nature connection and like using the landscape to help me interpret my own sort of subconscious state at the moment. Um, simply like going out on a hike and asking the hike or the nature around me to help me 
with my cloudiness or to help me answer a question as it relates to what my business should do next. And then just noticing what's around me and whatever it is that stands out to me is the, what I then lean into. So if I notice a red cardinal, I might start thinking about, you know, bird medicine and what the color red brings to, to me. Or if I notice like dead leaves on the ground, I might think about, you know, nutrient cycles and regeneration or the process of decay. Mm. And so then I'll kind of be like, okay, I need to focus on this, that, or the other thing. So, um, the cloudiness really like the moment that I accepted it and started working with it, I woke up the next morning and I had improved energy levels and it's been improving and feeling more quote unquote normal, you know, every day since. And not to keep steamrolling here, but that goes back to what Cal said about the dreamline, which I was kind of in just finishing talking about, which is that consensus reality can shift in unpredictable ways. Mm. But like the dreamline is the anchor mm. through those turbulent waters. I mean, if you didn't have a dream and then therefore didn't know which direction your dreamline was in, you could literally just walk in circles. And every once in a while, you'd trip over the dreamline without even realizing it. And you'd be like, oh man, I'm in a flow. This feels so great. But you can intentionally, you know, walk down the dreamline basically by naming and identifying your values and how you want to live your life as it relates to a few key areas in Paul's language, the four doctors. Um, so to me, the dreamline was the thing. Like I didn't go backwards to anywhere. I just kept moving down the dreamline and I allowed consensus reality to reconfigure itself around me as I stayed steadfast on my dreamline. So at one time your dreamline was bringing this farm into the world. At one time that was a node on my dreamline. Okay. What is your dreamline? My dreamline is to um, like you could boil it down. And well, when I, what's funny is when I do boil it down and I just think about it as like a word or a phrase, I think about it as be here, but mm. like that, even what that has meant has shifted along with consensus reality, as you know, over the years. So to me, what be here means is that my family is living as much of the time as possible in a way that is in relationship with nature and right at the intersection of self-care and health, you know, earth care, like I was saying earlier, like if my actions are beneficial to myself and my family and the earth in a sort of positive feedback loop, I'm having a good time. Like that's what gets me going. Um, and so my dream really is to like the opposite of my dream was when I was living on wall street thinking about recipes and farms and blogs all day long while numbers were ticking across the screen and I was being screamed at or made fun of or mocking somebody because I'm good at that. Um, and, you know, leaving on the bell to go to the butcher shop so I can cook for like three hours and fall asleep. That was kind of a nightmare because how could I possibly come out on balance if I'm like living my, you know, in this fucking stock exchange, staring at a screen for most of my waking hours and then on a subway in traffic, like in a, you know, fancy shoes, like running to the butcher shop. There's no time for me to discover any of these other things. Like, so as soon as I got on the farm, even as an apprentice, as soon as I left the city and started learning, you know, basics of farming, I just 
I just was a completely different person. And I was in a completely different environment and it unlocked every key in my head. And it all started with planting a little rosemary on my patio in New York City. Like one little pot of herbs on the patio was enough to then want more freshness in my life. And Love that. then I connected with farms and restaurants and then I apprenticed on a farm and then we developed our own farm. And, you know, now I'm a guy who goes on podcasts talking about farming, which is, you know, in a sense, super weird, especially if you're with me day to day, you know, you'd see that I'm more like an executive producer of the farm, which I probably shared with you in the past, but. Well, you're speaking on the paradigm shift that needs to occur. I think you're speaking or a possibility to me. You're speaking on a possibility that exists that is not being currently explored to a, to a big enough degree. I I mean like, and it's being explored um, in a lot of ways that should probably be encouraged. Like earlier we were talking about no-till. There's Mm. like, there's a hundred million acres of industrial farmland that's now being practiced no-till, which is like one of the main things that, um, that movie kiss the ground or kiss the earth, whatever it's called um, describes. So like tilling is a major, major problem. Right. But the, the industry, like, you know, the food systems and industry and whatnot, um, has a way of kind of co-opting these things. Like the way sustainable means nothing now, right? Or the way natural means nothing. Mm. So like no-till nowadays could actually involve more chemicals being sprayed on the earth. Because if you can imagine someone who always tilled their earth and they're used to a big brown field of loose dirt to plant their stuff in, but now they're not tilling. But when they go to plant their crops, they're going to say, oh, there's weeds everywhere. So they have to spray a bunch of herbicides. And so it's not like no-till is the answer. It's not like carbon cycle is the answer. It's not like anything is the answer. It's everything. Like it's a comprehensive approach, which is to me why it all comes back to the idea that we're taking into the world in the first place. So Mm. it's like, it's, Mm. it's a worldview paradigm idea shift that should ultimately lead to, you know, if nothing else, consumers wanting these things. And that's probably the fastest way is if consumers demand these things. Mm. Um, But, uh, I don't know. We could probably talk about this all day. Yeah, we could. I'm excited about it. It gives me a lot of hope. What? Talking about this? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really unfortunate aspect of, I don't know what it is to hone in, to, to build life through the lens of a fear paradigm which is what I think so much of mainstream media functions on. And we've seen that through COVID and everything. And it appears to me as though there are two pathways that people are beginning to walk. You're either totally bought in on fear or you're totally bought in on love. And I've gotten to this place where I just have no time for the fear paradigm anymore. The World Economic Forum stuff, the the food shortages, the 40 harvests left. Okay, whether that's, we've been talking about that for a long time though. Whether or not that's true, 
whatever our perception is, that's going to dictate what our reality looks like. So if you want to focus on the fear paradigm and devastation, desolation, dismal ending, we've got to merge with robots to continue to exist. Great. That's what your life is going to look like. But if you choose to go this other way, because there are infinite possibilities and you choose to follow the love line, which leads back to nature, which leads to God, which leads to truth and humanity and abundance and prosperity and light and sun and air and beauty. That's what your reality is going to look like. And this discussion to me brings light to more people of that possibility. Because if you're just plugged into the media mainframe of what's being said and coming out of institutions, then you're, you're fully immersed in the belief that we're fucked. This is, <laughs> this is the end. What are we going to do? There's no possible way out. Let's manufacture some other crisis to bamboozle people into isolation, terror, and death. It's a dead-end road. Or you could say, man, this world is pretty fucking amazing. The earth is an absolute blessing in the universe. And we are here. We can actually do something. We can, there are real things we can do that will help it become more healthy, more abundant, more prosperous. That's, so that's us in the process. Obviously. Yeah, that, that's what I'm interested in. You know, I we don't have time. We don't have. I got to hang out with this guy who's a just a profound dude. He's a shaman in L.A. He spent a lot of time down in South America with the Shipibo, I think. And um, he said to me, "Eb, we don't have the luxury of being down. We don't have the luxury of negative self-talk." And when he said it, he said that to me, I, was, I thought to myself, shit, that's a luxury to say it's fucked. Yeah. We don't have that luxury because that programs our mind and our perception in a very specific way that leads us to believing that those ideas, we don't have the luxury for that. Oh, and then everything we see is, is only through yeah. that lens. So we just, we don't see the beauty. We see the exactly. things that are confirming yeah. this belief. Yeah. What you guys are bringing up is a, one of my favorite Rudolf Steiner passages about like two people sitting on a train, just passing through, you know, what you could imagine to be a beautiful countryside. And the one guy is, what's this bag? I'm not sure. Regular. This is rag. Yeah. God knows what's in these things. <laughs> Um, one, uh, one, one guest is like, let's say Eben, who just looks around and says life is a miracle all day long. And one guy is just like completely disgruntled, you know, angry, hates his life, hates mm. his wife, hates his daughter kind of guy. And they're riding through the same train through the same countryside. This they're going to become a meme. They're going to have the two totally different experiences. Uh -huh. Um, you know, one guy's not going to experience much more than his watch probably. Because he's going to, when is this thing ending? And Evan's you know, communing with 
all that is looking Look at, at the mountains window. and the trees and the beauty and yeah you see you, same exact experience two totally different perceptions based yeah. on the ideas that you're bringing into it in the first place it was like what you were talking about earlier before the pod when you were living in new york city on in dumbo on the edge of the manhattan bridge or in the other situation, living on the edge of the Williamsburg Bridge and you're looking at the bridge and you're constantly thinking about the bridge as this escape route and looking at all the people leaving. And meanwhile, there's a million, there's infinite ways to view the bridge. The bridge is a connector of two places. The bridge is also a funnel to bring people into this place. But your perception, because there was something inside of you subconsciously going on that was thinking about leaving, escaping this, this metropolitan you know, cityscape. And that's what you saw every day when you looked at the bridge, all the people leaving. And you weren't really thinking about the other aspects of the bridge. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Super interesting. It goes back to that old saying, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. You know, it's just like, fuck, what? You start to tune into that, man. It gets really trippy. That's my whole jam. I know. <laughs> I would love to, to pivot because I've got two of y'all here who have pretty, pretty extensive a pretty extensive relationship with cannabis. And I think there's a lot of kind of misconceptions out there and really a lack of knowledge about cannabis. And, you know, I know my prior use was mostly just to numb out, get high with the guys and, you know, eat a bunch of bad food. But, <laughs> but more recently it's, it's changed, you know, and it's something that, that, I'll sit with from time to time now where I really hadn't done it in a couple of years. Um, and so, yeah, just like, I think just from the source itself, I'd love to hear from Jared what it means to what most everybody has access to and how that's grown just in the same ways that we're, we're talking about yeah. farming. Yeah. So, I mean, farming, anything, it's, it comes down to the farmer even if there was some sort of certification, like in the case of organic, there is. So even if there was some sort of certification that says you got to do this, that, and the other thing to be certified, let's say organic, you could still just do the bare minimum of that. Or you could like do it in a way that kind of passes the paperwork, or you could really, really believe in the concept such that you far exceed any minimum standard. You just so happen to qualify for their standard as well. Um, so cannabis farmers are just like any farmers. So like at the end of the day, these guys or ladies are taking some sort of growing medium and putting some sort of, you know, plant in it and feeding it some sort of nutrients and exposing it to some sort of light. And there's a lot of different ways that you can go about that. The way we go about it is by growing them outside in the earth underneath the sunlight and the moonlight and all the different qualities of light we were talking about earlier, completely tapped in, you know, and sensitized to its environment, um, in a very biodiverse landscape with living plants growing all around it, decaying and returning to the soil full of, you know, 
countless insects and lizards and birds and, you know, little mammals. And, um, the, there's also the sort of non-specific subtle energy qualities to, you know, our process is like, this is a sacred living place that we're stewarding. And so the crops that arise in that environment are immersed and saturated by this energy of love and admiration and reverence. Um, if you're growing it like in a state where it's illegal and you have to hide it and the cops might come and you might lose your business or you might get fined a lot or you might go to jail. Well, you have a totally different energy around um, the process and that has nothing to do with even growing practices. You know, you could be, I'm not talking like subtle energy basically that is infused into these things. And that plus the chemicals that are used to grow commercially, plus the lights that are used to grow commercially, I think all sort of compound together to give people the classic sort of um, ill feelings or anxiety or paranoia that comes with cannabis that is usually available to people. Um, they, since the time of, you know, probably the seventies forward have been really intensively bred and selectively bred to have higher levels of THC, which for a time was thought to be like the only valuable part of cannabis. Um, and so if you wanted to grow cannabis commercially in California and sell it to dispensaries, which is where, you know, most Californians who enjoy cannabis are getting it from, uh, that dispensary, like, let's say you have a contract for them to buy a hundred pounds of cannabis. You're going to grow for them. They'll likely reject it if it's below 20 or 21% THC. So at the dispensaries, you're seeing things from like 21% up to, you know, I feel like Snoop Dogg's advertising 35%, something like that. What would a typical biodynamic (laughs) strain well, I mean, like part of it has to do with the genetics of the plant. Like some plants will just be much more naturally inclined to have higher levels of this compound or that compound. Um, but when we've tested the plants that we've grown on our farm, we're usually in like the 18 to 21% range. And so that's kind of, it, that even shows that we're using, you know, generally available seeds where people are kind of inclined to, to grow high THC stuff. And, you know, it's like, most seeds nowadays, it's very difficult to even find what they call land race seeds, which are mm. seeds that come from like Origin. the mountains of Afghanistan or China or something like Africa. that. Yeah, you can't, you can't find them. Well, like there are people that you see talking about it on Instagram and stuff like that, but I've never ever been in a commercial environment where somebody was selling a, a crop like that. They wouldn't be in any commercial. No, it's like a, it's somebody it's who's gone really deep and, down a rabbit hole to trying to study that stuff is, is interested in that kind of stuff. But do, do any of the dispensaries have interest in biodynamic yeah, cannabis? Well, like less so in, in SoCal. There's a few actually. There's a few that'll yeah, have a really few. good organic sun grown. And it's interesting because for me, I'll always go for the sun grown, um, which is just a more naturally cultivated plant. But in the cannabis community, that's really, people aren't really interested in that because they want the, the super flavorful hydroponic where it's just bursting with THC. And, you know, 
that to me, the super high THC move is not, it's not conducive to what the plant is meant to be. The plant's not meant to be like that. Much like someone who's well, all roided out in their yeah, it's just or like a dog. Breed. You've turned it into Frankenstein weed. Think you about know? like the dogs that can't breathe because their their faces are smashed in, or like you know right. Labradors who are just like dumb as a, a hammer because they've been <laughs> you know bred to be these certain kind of dogs. When you're breeding for something super specific, you're obviously doing it at the expense of all sorts of yeah. other things. Yeah. So what was fascinating to me is the first time I tried biodynamic cannabis was for probably the next six plus hours I felt it and I was fully functioning I felt really good like heart opened and if you'd have told me that I was going to be stoned for six hours I would have never done it because my experience being stoned I've never actually I mean I probably have but smoking multiple times but it's not an enjoyable experience. You were probably experiencing, you know, an entourage effect of the various terpenes and chemical compounds that are in a properly grown cannabis plant. So, you know, they, they all have, uh, their own unique attributes. If they were like synthesized and down into like CBD pills or CBN, you know, patches, there's these, they can synthesize these things down, but when left uh, unadulterated, just in their natural whole plant uh, form, I mean that's the kind of things that that's 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 basically my approach to anything that goes in or on my body. I'm looking for things that are whole and unadulterated, as minimally processed as possible. That's why our products are made in this way because that's what we're looking for in the world. Um, so anybody who's doing stuff like that, you know, we pretty quickly become supporters of them because it's, you know, you go into a city and, you know, shout out to um, a few here in Austin, like uh, the well, Daidue, Pacha. Um, there's a handful of places that are really taking sourcing seriously, but that's three restaurants that I can name in the entire, you know, city of Austin that so far I've discovered that I'd be comfortable eating at. The well is really good. I know. So really good. good. You've been there? I haven't. I went there one day and it actually was closed. I was bummed, but I've heard great things about it. Their bone broth is like one Wild. of the tastiest things I've ever had. Yeah, Their whole menu, like if I'm not mistaken, is gluten-free, um, and which is great for celiacs and just people who in general who have, you know, gluten sensitivities because there's no cross-contamination at all. And um, I'm not sure of her other partners, but the owner, Nicole, has been a delight to meet. And, just so glad it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Places like that, you know, are so worth supporting and going out of your way for because it costs so much extra to um, source these ingredients because, I mean, most places aren't sourcing biodynamically. But, um, you know, a stat that I've probably said on every podcast I've ever been on is that 0.002% of U.S. farmland is certified biodynamic. So there's a lot of zeros in that number. Um and so it's really hard to get um, super quality ingredients that would be considered, quote unquote, beyond organic. Um, and yet, I think there's an argument to be made for that to be the bare minimum standard for, you know, as many people on the planet to be eating food like that as a matter of, you know, our global well-being, health, 
prosperity, security. What what gives you hope that that this we will have this paradigm shift? I just think I have that hope because I've no. I mean, like you're basically asking me. Like I spend close to zero percent of my day thinking about you know degenerative chemical farming. Um, other than when I'm asked to differentiate the difference between it and biodynamic or other holistic or regenerative farming practices. So I'm, what gives me hope is that like, I pretty much only encounter people who are interested in this kind of stuff. And I also find that I have the ability to communicate the topic most of the time in a way that makes people who are formerly uninterested into it, very interested into it. So in my particular experience, I find that most people are really excited about some of the things we discussed today and they're left feeling like, you know, sometimes at the end of a podcast, I feel like if I was a listener, I'd be like, Oh, now what? Um, because like, how am I supposed to find this food or whatever? And it, it's, it's, it's just like the, the pot of rosemary on the balcony. I was saying earlier, it's like little tiny steps, one thing at a time, mm. teach your kids how to, how to grow some herbs, teach your kids how to plant a plant. You'll learn at the same time, do one plant, you know what I mean? Literally right now in our backyard, because we're in a totally random rental house here in Austin, as opposed to on our farm, we have, we bought it at the farmer's market the other day, rosemary, thyme, a little pot with a blackberry bush in it and some mint planted around the bottom and two little things of lettuce. Like we're growing the tiniest little garden you could ever imagine. And it brings so much joy into our life and you water it every day and you care for it. And gives you food and gives you connection. So it can just be so small. Um, and that, that can be a really slippery slope in, a, in the best way possible. You know what I mean? Enjoy those herbs, add them to your dinner. Notice how different they are from the herbs you buy at the grocery store. It's as simple as that little thing. And then, you know, to go the extra mile and be like, well, but I want them to be biodynamic or whatever. You know what I mean? That all takes some effort, but connecting with like, a biodynamic farm, there's a few and, you know, you just start looking into it. There's a few around everywhere and, or places that focus on Korean natural farming or permaculture or French biointensive gardening. There's a variety of holistic practices out there that people engage with. And when you find them, you develop relationships with them. You start supporting them. You source everything you can from them. You join their CSAs or encourage them to start one. And you share the gospel of how great that place is. And you guys, you know, start succeeding a little bit little by little together and maybe they can sell you a little baby pot of rosemary and you could have that one at home because if you just go to like home depot and get you know a commercial pot of rosemary or whatever you're probably not gonna have the same impact as if like for example i was at here in austin i was at the mueller farmer's market there's this guy his business is an acronym she s-h-e but i think it's sustainable human earth maybe and he's really into permaculture all of his potting soil and everything that goes into the plants um he makes himself out of various materials. And that's just totally different than like a almost inert bag of potting soil that you can get at the garden shop. So it doesn't take that much to find people who are super passionate about it. So if you're not the kind of person who has the time or interest or, you know, resources or whatever to get super passionate about it in your own life, well, you can outsource that to people who are. That's like Scott, our brand, Scott's brand, Sun Potion. You know, there's brands that really go the extra mile um, to care about these things. And I think that's why the products are superior. But it also means that people can access them without 
really changing their life at all. You know, at the end of the day, even if you didn't join with your 20 neighbors and decide to fund your own farm here in the neighborhood, it would be pretty easy to join a biodynamic CSA, which I just did. I've only been living here for three months. I got on a wait list at this small biodynamic farm. A month later, they called me. Now I get my produce from a local biodynamic farm. So mm. it's not that hard to, to go after it once you know what you're looking for. It's like learning a new word in the dictionary and then hearing it all over the place. If you have these ideas and if it's what you're looking for, you're going to see it everywhere. And um, mm. just get at it. Go for it. Mm. Beautiful. That was a cannabis question, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I did want to follow up on the summer solstice serum and like use case for it. Like I just put it on every morning, yeah. maybe sometimes in the afternoon as well. But what are people, how are they connecting to it? So, I mean, everybody who gets any of our products is invited to a complimentary uh, video consult to have this exact discussion. And frankly, those discussions usually go on to fun and other interesting topics because the people who, who reach out are usually pretty interested. But the, in that talk, what I would share is that like your daily use case is the most common use case, but Evan brought up another one, aftershave. Like literally I can name a hundred reasons. My brother uses it before and aftershave, but I could come up with a hundred ways in which our family has used it over the last five years. And a lot of them start veering into like first aid, like little tiny dog bite on my daughter's face, um, mm. scratches, hives, itches, bug bites, anytime, mm. 100% of the times. Thankfully, no one in our family in the last seven or eight years has had something that like really required stitches or like medical attention or something. So bar that aside, 100% of the times that anyone in my family in the last five plus years has had anything other than my skin feels amazing, has gotten the serum on it almost immediately. My daughter will just come look for a bottle and put it on bug bites and, you know, hang nails wow, up, up her nose after a bloody nose. Um, so endless, endless uses. People, you know, people email about psoriasis, eczema, rosacea, hormonal acne, clearing um, it all up, toe infection. Yeah, just on and on. And infections. I mean, this is obviously not a medical product right, right, and I'm right. obviously not a doctor, but these herbs have been used as, wait, no, actually, no, you're right. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> these herbs have been used as cure-alls. Like mm. you don't have to look too hard into that word to understand that they mean cure-all. <laughs> so cure-all. like they, they, the, the ingredients of the summer solstice serum are wild St. John's wort, calendula, tulsi, German chamomile, Roman chamomile, wild yellow dock and go to cola. They're all solar and lunar infused into biodynamic olive oil. Some of our other products engage avocado oil and sweet almond oil as well. But these, um, basically have even olive oil is a cure all like people have been bathing in olive oil, you know, to Cleopatra and, and beyond. Like it's just, it's, it's an ancient ritual to bathe the skin in oil. And, you know, in Ayurvedic traditions, they have, you know, it goes into every hole in your body, up your, you know, Whoa. Up, up all the holes. Um, I've had castor oil in my eyes before, you know, I've had ghee poured into like this donut, like down my spine. Uh, Whoa, not these like, are some you know, parties. Dude. Obviously I'm talking <laughs> external, right. But 
It's like these oils interact with our body in mysterious uh-huh. ways, especially when you then start layering in the self-care or application method. So if right. I'm, if I'm now taking our body serum, cause there's the summer solstice serum and then we have our restorative body serum. We have a handful mm-hmm. of products now. So if I'm applying the body serum, yeah, of course I could put a line or a ribbon or a few drops of it down my body and rub it in and move on with my day. And it's going to, uh, it's going to nourish and soothe and feed my skin. But if I were to just take three, four five, you know, maybe on a great day, 15 minutes to massage it in mm-hmm. and to, you know, have an interaction with my fascia and my muscles and my organs as I get up into my midsection. And if I'm applying the products in a more sort of ritualistic way, well, now I've gotten into a whole nother realm. So it's like, there's, there's, there's emotional physiological benefits from applying these products in a, in a regular ritualistic way that go even beyond the first aid, which is sort of an endless myriad of ways and which has already gone beyond daily application, like you said. So it's pretty endless. I mean, then we, we add it to clay, uh, and, and other, uh, dried powders and turn it into a face mask, which is one of the things we'll do at the event on Sunday. Um, I think that's another really cool hair beard way. Yeah. I've been wondering, can I put it on my hair? Your hair and your beard will love it. I know when I had a beard. It did love it. Um, I think that's another really cool aspect of what you do. Jared is that you create this pathway for more mindfulness in your life, you know, because you, when you get the product and you start using it and you realize how profound it is, you want to enjoy it when you put it on. You don't want like to rush through it. After my shave, I really take the time and I don't take probably more than two minutes, but I really like take the time to get it into every, every crevice and, and plane of my face, you know, and it's, it adds to the sense of connection, which is another thing that we've lost in our hyper, hyper expedited life in the Western world, where it's like, wake up, get to work, drink your coffee, don't have time to eat, slam a burrito or a fucking, you know, egg McMuffin on the way to work, get to your job, grind it out, take your lunch break. It's like we never stop to take time to just enjoy experience yeah. taste be with the things that we're doing you're exactly you know? right well yeah and i think about it like uh when i get up and brush my teeth i don't even think about it but when i put this on you're right there's a bit of a ritual even if it's yeah. 20 30 seconds you know now to 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 actually play with ex, ex, extending that time and spending more time with it getting more you know, kind of familiar with my body, but that just that 20, 30 seconds of rubbing it together, smelling it, rubbing it in. And it's a, it's an intimate part of the day that I don't totally. generally do. So what you guys are talking about is one of the major teachings of my life, frankly, which is mm. the first mindfulness teacher I ever had, Bernice, uh, Bernice Todras in New York city, um, who is a early student of, uh, John Kabat-Zinn's, um, mm. and, so yeah, she's, you know, in her elder years now, um, she described to me in probably our first session, there's 
mindfulness practice, which is like taking a bath. It's like, this is a 30, 40 minute window. If you're a beginner, three breaths or one minute is perfectly sufficient way to start building that up as, as it feels appropriate. But let's say I'm have a dedicated mindfulness practice. I'm going to sit down to do a meditation practice of some kind. That's the mindfulness practice. Then there's the thread of mindfulness that goes throughout my day. Um, that's like brushing my teeth mindfully, blessing my toothpaste before I brush it to enhance the, the effect it'll have on my body, blessing my food and water before I take it into my body. Why is my toothpaste so different? And, you know, blessing the house when I walk into it, there's, there's literally endless ways of, of having a more connection to the thread of mindfulness that's available in the present moment throughout all activities. And as funny as it sounds, the book that taught me this is like one of my, like, I just think it's one of the funniest titles of all time, but it was called something like, um, super calm for the super busy, like meditation in a New York minute or something like that. And it was, it was was like, it had seven subtitles. It's like 37 exercises to like whatever. And it's all about how to shower mindfully, how to ride the subway mindfully, how to commute to work mindfully, how to walk up or down a flight of steps mindfully. And so this was, this thread of mindfulness is this thing that kept me from going insane when I was working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in a room without light in front of seven computer screens is that as the youngest guy on the, in the very small company, probably six or seven of us total as the youngest guy in the company and likely to be so for a while, I didn't see much of a chance of me not being the youngest guy for a while. I was certainly what was referred to as the coffee bitch. And, um, so getting the coffee each day and opening up that door of the exchange and the sunlight hitting me like a vampire and then like counting my in breaths with each pace and counting my out breaths with each pace as I approach the the coffee truck and you know getting the order so precisely right like everyone had a little different order like perfectly made coffees getting them back hot like all of that actually became my mindfulness practice and was sort of my gateway my way to stay sane throughout that life. I thought if I did enough of that, I could continue to live in existence like that and kind of keep it in balance before realizing that it was completely out of balance. So I would walk to work and before walking through security and, um, you know, metal detectors and all that, I'd sit outside at the federal building, which is like a super famous building that you see on the news all the time, sit outside on the steps and just close my eyes and, um, meditate as like, thousands of people were streaming by. Um, and, uh, you know, I just knew that I was kind of keeping myself in balance basically. What I didn't know is that I was dipping my toe into the water of, you know, a lifestyle that is all I wanted for myself. And I had kind of found myself through that practice. Um, so yeah, it all comes back to that thread of mindfulness. Like you can only really, um, stay on that thread with the first category, which is like developing a mindfulness practice. It's kind of like going to the gym for that. So by having a regular meditation practice, you, as the yogis say, can take that off the mat and do your, you know, mm. you know, your regular life. Love that. And so I think that's what you guys 
seeing me is like 15 years of just really having a lot of reverence for that thread of mindfulness mm-hmm. because you know it's like ferris bueller otherwise you wake up and miss it what's this quote <laughs> life moves pretty fast yeah you don't stop and look around every once in a while you might miss something yeah yeah well what was the name of that book Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, no, the book. It's actually you, a movie. The <laughs> book you were referring You've never to. Never seen it. Um, <laughs> Fucker. The kid he wants to play this hooky for the day. Guy. <laughs> He's doing a comedy tour. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> what book are you talking about? Super calm. Oh yeah. Super busy. Yeah, Amazon that up. Meditation I in met, New York yeah, Minute. Meditation in New York Minute was definitely a part of that title. We'll, we'll have a link to that. I I'm love gonna, that. I'm gonna order it when we get off because that that sounds. I've really lacked, about. I've really lacked mindfulness, but I've, I've reintroduced this mindfulness practice in the morning and some journaling and it's, nice. it's, um, it's a little, you know, there's definitely resistance for me uh-huh. and I'm just good, allowing that to be there and still go through the practice, but just adding little doses throughout the day uh, and not holding myself to some ridiculous standard, but also just when I think of it, like, how can I do this mindfully? So one of the things that we offer on those video consoles when people buy the products, um, I mean, we got aside from the comedy, besides the comedy, (laughs) that's not extra. It might be, I might, maybe we do it real quick. It's like a very brief facial relaxation. Oh yeah. This is good. We should do it. And you know, the benefit to this is like, this is what I think when I'm applying the product. So when you're saying like, how do I ritualize this? How do I enhance my connection with it? Um, this is what I do. And this is what we offer to people when they call and ask the same question. Um, and like, gosh, like how, there must be some way to end this podcast. So like maybe this will we'll get there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to us. Dude. All right. So this is inspired by uh, less Femi um, open focus meditation, which is a style that he developed that, you know, look it up. It's totally worthwhile. And his, his uh, downloads are available MP3s and stuff like that. And there's a book called open focus brain. But before we do it, I'll just give five seconds or 10 seconds of uh, what open focus is, because it's kind of like narrow focus is open. Let's start with open focus. Open focus is the lion sitting in the shade, observing the entire savanna and, you know, herd of wildebeest are walking by and he's just sitting there calm as anything. Narrow focus is he notices the one limping in the back, his eyebrows furrow, his nose leans forward, his adrenaline starts pumping and he's about to make the one sprint of the day to go take that thing down. Mm. So our computers, our phones, our general lifestyle pulls us inadvertently into narrow focus all the time, which has a physiological effect on us that we're generally unaware of. And so same thing, open focus has the contrary, you know, indication. And so we can practice open focus even while reading a book or looking at a screen it's as simple as um, like not paying exclusive attention to the letters on the page, but noticing the page itself and the environment behind it and in your periphery. And it's, uh, it's meant to be done with eyes open, actually, as you develop the practice. But I, I generally, you know, eyes closed is a great way to do it for the first time. And so all open focus is, is like this guy was not a spiritual meditation teacher of any kind. He was some sort of neuroscientist, if I'm remembering correctly. And by hooking people up to, you know, whatever the EKG like patches and wires, whatever (laughs) on their head and asking them a series of questions, he realized over time, 
which questions put people into open focus, certain brain state, you know, brainwave state. And that's what these questions are based off of. So imagining playfully in his language, playfully imagining three-dimensional spaces in our body is essentially the exercise. And so if I ask you to imagine the space between your eyes, I'm not imagining, I'm not saying like, oh, it's about two inches. It's, you know, I'm imagining you to try to put your, I'm asking you to put your feeling senses into that place and have an experience of what that actual place is feeling like at this moment. And so this can be done to your whole body, but right now we'll just do it to uh, the face. So it's a series of cues and then like 10 seconds in between each cue. And in between the cues, you just stay with the last cue. So can you imagine the space between your eyes? Can you imagine the space between the center of your eyes and the tip of your nose? Playfully imagine the space from the tip of your nose to the center of both ears. Can you imagine the space from the center of both ears to the tip of your chin? Can you imagine the entire three-dimensional volume of your jawbone? Can you imagine the entire three-dimensional volume of your tongue, teeth, and lips? Can you imagine the volume of your entire skull? Can you imagine the volume of your entire body as if it already has the sensitivity you're feeling right now in your skull? Are you ready? Check back in. Sweet, dude. Mm. It's really good. I hope everybody joined us in that. Yeah. If not, rewind. Yeah, it's really good. It's great practice. Les Femi in the house. Shout out. So, yeah, I think about that all the time just throughout my day. I just think about the volume of my thumb or the volume of my index finger. And then, you know, they take you through like the volume of space in between your thumb and your index finger, as if you could feel it as if it was your thumb or your index finger. And before long, you just lose sense of all boundaries. You know, my favorite track in terms of go-to, because like I can do this practice when I want to and when it occurs to me, but when I need it, it's his dissolving physical and emotional pain track. And I usually use it for physical pain. And like, let's say my back hurts or I have a real injury. Like I broke my arm. 
takes you right into the edge and the periphery of your pain and then back into open focus and then right in all the way ultimately into the center of your pain and it allows you to diffuse the feelings of pain throughout other parts of your body and like relate the pain physically like how far is the pain from the center of your spine from the front of your body to the back of your body you know all these different ways of just reorienting because in that moment you're exclusively focused on the pain in fact actually what you're focused on is an aversion to the pain so by like not averting it and kind of going into it and like letting go and just like being there i can't explain it further than to say that the feelings of pain can dissolve and feel much much better and so like i had a root canal when i was 17 that got messed up so like a couple years ago they actually took it out and put in an implant and after that procedure i took nothing but open focus meditation maybe a homeopathic arnica no painkillers no antibiotics you know no support of any kind other than that track damn good stuff man definitely link to that as well yeah that might be a nice place to wrap anything else you want to add (laughs) i don't think so i mean like if this goes unedited we're pushing three hours so if somebody made it this far they definitely deserve a a unlearn code discount over at sun potion um to to try out the the serum perfect let's do uh 10 off for all caps unlearn at uh, sunpotion.com what a reward which is also also a gift from scott and sun potion but he's happy to to contribute and get people psyched on the product so get it so get you some y'all yeah get it good stuff this was great thank you thank you yeah thanks cal we did it you're the best in the business i love you guys love you too man all right thanks for joining you've been listening to the great unlearn For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.